Hello everyone, this is Jack with the Book Club from Hell, and before we start this episode, I would like to make a brief announcement. We have chased meaning away, in its place grows the tower, always expanding and leaving blissfully fulfilled employees in its wake. I am a doctor who specialises in souls, a potent advertising slogan leaves ripples in the world of the spirit. Love is remembered, maybe S was responsible for everything, but who else do I have? Blending Franz Kafka, Mikhail Bulgakov, Jacques Ellul, and Stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl, Tower is a search for meaning in a world no longer organised for humans. So goes the blurb for my upcoming novel, Tower, to be released in November 2023 and available on my website, www.jackbc.me, that is, www.jackbc.me. Thank you. Jack. Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, an audio-based weapon wielded in the Lemurian Time War. Nick Land is an English philosopher, best known for his contributions to accelerationism, his association with the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit in the 1990s, and, most saliently for this episode, his later works, seminal in the neo-reactionary canon. This week's episode is on Land's 2013 essay, The Dark Enlightenment, wherein he details why modern Western society is decaying, why it will continue to decay in a leftward direction, and what lies over the horizon. Before we start, if you like what we're doing with this podcast, probably the best thing you can do is to recommend it to people you know. As well as this, we'd like to start interviewing people on this show, so if you have anyone you think would be a good fit, please let us know on our Discord server, the details of which are in the show description. So, if you're ready to hear about perhaps Neo-Reaction's best summary of itself, then listen on. Enjoy. Yeah, Nick Land's interesting. I found his his work, I found this particular work to be full of gems, but I felt like I had to wade through a lot of <laughs> He does not make it to, easy. <laughs> to get, yeah, and there were definitely moments where he, he wrote quite lucidly that's what i found a little bit disorienting about because there were parts where i found it very hard to get through um not because of the the substance of what he was saying but Mm. because of the way that he was saying it his his style and his delivery and then other parts especially at the end he was very very clear very lucid just like straight to the point i was Mm. like oh this is a good why didn't you write like this the whole time (laughs) but yeah lots of interesting ideas (laughs) yeah so before recording I sent Levi a link to Meltdown by Nick Land because with Nick Land, there are there are sort of two broad eras of his work. There's there's the earlier part of his work when he was with the CCIU, the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit at the University of Warwick, or associated with the University of Warwick in the nineties, where he's He's writing about accelerationism, or he's always writing about it. He's developing these ideas of accelerationism. He's melding together kind of like William Gibson cyberpunk, Southern Gothic, Lovecraft, and Deleuze. Deleuze, Kant, Nietzsche. And that stuff is just what fucking a combo. impenetrable. <laughs> what a, what a strange is, combo. <laughs> it is, it's, it's great fun, but I do not pretend to understand more than like... <laughs> Two percent of what he's saying. So it's really funny in this particular essay or collection of essays, 
you can definitely see the old Nick Land or the older Nick Land popping up when it becomes less lucid and he starts just attaching hyper to the start of words to to make it more futuristic or cooler. <laughs> yeah. well, so futurist. What was that feminist, uh, the xenofeminism, where they just like, just so hyper ultra this and, and just like make everything In, so Really interestingly futuristic. though, with, I don't know if the xenofeminists <laughs> say that they're influenced by Nick Land, but Nick Land's, particularly his earlier work, is really, really influential in cyber feminism or xenofeminism mm. and those sorts they of things. They might movies. be influenced without realising that they've been influenced. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the people who are... The multiple people who compose Laboria Cubonics, the author of the Xenofeminist <laughs> Manifesto, are all very well read. I, I imagine they are aware of Nick Land. A number of them, I think, are also UK-based philosophers. So they... They probably they're probably aware of Nick Land. Is then, yeah. And if they're a bit older, if they've been around since the nineties, like active since the nineties, yeah. Because then the the latter half of of his work is the stuff focused much more on neo reaction. I think, mm. Mm. particularly academics, find it more difficult to get around because it's it's uh, it's well, it's their <laughs> neo reactionary. It's highly reactionary, anti egalitarian. Highly anti-democracy. Anti-cathedral. Anti-cathedral. He loves Curtis Yarvin. That's a really a really fun part of this essay or collection <laughs> of essays is, is how much he loves Curtis Yarvin. It, it, it might be the best overview of Curtis Yarvin I've come across. He makes a better case for Yarvin than Yarvin yeah, does. Yeah. If, it, if any listener is interested in Curtis Yarvin and hasn't read The Dark Enlightenment by Nick Land, I'll just recommend it now. Like, strong recommendation for people yeah, who yeah. like Curtis Yarvin. <laughs> you, you'll love this. So, so why don't we give a high-level idea of roughly what this book is about or this collection of essays. So this mm. is called The Dark Enlightenment by Nick Land and it's a collection of- it written, actually. I, I suppose I suppose like eight or nine essays, blog posts. What well, I think they were released as a blog, mm. as blog posts. Um, yeah, sequentially as blog posts, and now they're all mashed together. And this particular the the link that we can include in a single in a single giant yeah giant post that you can find uh, that we'll include in the show notes. Um, and. Mm. And then there's a huge comment section as well. I actually read the comment section. It was really interesting. There's lots of people. The comment section's interesting. And like arguing with each other. Yeah, it was really interesting. It was actually some parts of the comment section were at least as interesting as the as the text itself. Yeah. Like it's a comment section. Some of it some of the comments are absolute trash and some of them are really interesting. Okay, so first published <laughs> March March yeah, yeah. twenty twelve. Okay, so that's when this was first published. Yeah. So it's really interesting, and it's aged very well, I think. If it was published yeah. in 2012, it's aged incredibly well. In fact, I almost think as though he, I think that he was almost vindicated, in a way, his interest in, in this stuff, because the late 2010s and then COVID kind of turned up the neo-reactionary stuff. He must be having a field mm-hmm. day at mm-hmm. the moment. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, if you've post COVID, it's I guess it's settled down a bit. I had a look at him on Twitter, and he's just he's constantly spamming Twitter with all sorts of weird shit. I think he lives in Shanghai at the moment. Apparently, he was doing 
he was doing a lot of amphetamine when he was in the UK. I'm not sure how hard it is to find speed in Shanghai. So I don't know how much speed he's railing at the moment. But how come I'm not even rem- I'm not even remotely surprised? This has strong stimulant energy. I'm to not it. even remotely surprised that he was taking speed in the UK. <laughs> now that you've pointed out, yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of Nick Land's work has very, very before. powerful amphetamine energy. <laughs> the thing is, I the weird thing is, so I've I've tried to write whilst on amphetamines, and like recently, I've been writing to start writing again. As people on the Discord will know, I've got a blog now. If people want to check it out, it's uh, leviioutloud.com. Oh, and I've only got a few posts there at the moment. They're mainly me thinking. Levi out loud. Yeah, well, I mean, the links are also like we're upgrading the website, bookclubfromhell.com. We're upgrading all that stuff. We'll include all that stuff in the description. Um, so anyway, on my blog, I'm writing mostly about my thoughts on writing and technology and, and that sort of thing, Bitcoin. <clears throat> but writing now, so at the moment, I've been, I've been in Indonesia for like a few months. And in Indonesia, I don't have access to any stimulants or any weed or anything (laughs) and um also and i've stopped drinking as well so the only thing i put in my body other than food is caffeine so (laughs) so you know and that's fine i I think it's not a big deal um Mm -hmm. but i think that my writing's improved since like (laughs) not having stimulus like when i look at some (laughs) of the stuff that i wrote like a couple of years ago when i was on when i was on stimulants like specifically on um dexamphetamines uh like prescription <laughs> prescription dexamphetamines at at uh at university um and uh, like my writing was just like just not nearly as good it, it has this kind of edge to it you know like you're not as lucid you're sort of you're sort of you're t- too lucid and you sort of get into these rabbit holes of thinking mm. like this you sort of like become hyper focused on stuff which obviously like they're amphetamines right so um yeah, I don't think if you're a writer, if you're trying to write, you should really think twice about taking amphetamines to do your writing. It depends what you're going for. Yeah. I find there's there's a particular yeah, yeah, I guess if you're trying to go for brittleness to then. amphetamine thought that that, yeah. that Nick yeah, Land yeah. definitely has. <laughs> his, his writings have a lot of amphetamine to them. A narrowness, a brittleness, but brittleness also comes with fragility, right? Like he can become kind of quite fi- oh, fixated. That's why I say there's a fixation mm, where mm. it can it can lead you to start writing stuff and just and I think this definitely comes from Nick Land's stuff where I I would almost bet you could almost say which parts of the essay he was on it. Yeah, you can pick where in the sentence he just went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Reloaded. <laughs> or may maybe my advice for 2012. <laughs> <laughs> My advice for 2012 Nick Land would do the initial draft on amphetamines and then come back to it when you're sober. <laughs> and, and, and reread do a rewrite it. Would lucid. Uh, all right, maybe I spent too long fixated on this one tiny little thing. Yeah, on this one <laughs> article by John Derbyshire. Maybe I shouldn't spend the middle third of this oh, man, entire piece. It. Yeah. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to it. We'll get to the specific content of the Dark Enlightenment. You were asking me before recording, what's, what problem is he trying to solve? Which I find really difficult. I find that's a really difficult question to answer. I do think there, there is an overarching theme to this 
let's just call it an essay because it the way we read it it's like it's just a collection of blog posts or long blog posts that he then put all put together on the one web page so i think there is a unifying theme to this essay it is quite meandering it's it's pretty amphetamine in its in its sensibilities i think that the broad question he's addressing is trying to trying to offer some sort of taxonomy of he calls it universalism in the the sense of Curtis Yarvin. I think he borrowed the term from Curtis Yarvin. Alexander Dugan calls it post-liberalism, but whatever the dominant ideological strain is in Western countries, particularly around universities, around prestige media organizations, around government bureaucracies, this form of liberalism without the ballast of Jesus, effectively. So, okay, what is a post-Christian liberalism look like with its particular obsessions uh, within this context? He, he seems to insinuate that the greatest sin is racism, which I think is, is not... It's probably actually reasonable, I think, within the context of... If you, if you said there were seven deadly sins of the... Sorry, it's the seven deadly sins of the secular West or something like that in the modern age. It'd mm. be like racism, sexism. I think that, um, like, trans. Yeah, homophobia, transphobia. We've made it in the last five, five ten. Homophobia, transphobia. Mm. Those would be four of the seven deadly secular sins. Mm. Oh, uh, Not trusting the science. Capital T, capital S. Yeah, not trusting the science, and then just like thinking for yourself. No, it's <laughs> 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 a de- deadly sin. So, um, yeah, so yeah, maybe he he, he, go, he um, sets out. But to yeah, try we all know those cluster of things. Yeah, so he he sets out to try to elucidate what post liberalism in the Duganite sense looks like, or universalism in the Curtis Yarvin sense. He then. He then looks at the mechanisms by which this exerts control on society and by which it, it seeks to suppress enemies or enemies in the sense of people who don't agree with it or don't subscribe to this particular religion because he describes it as a religion. And then what are exit strategies? Yeah. And particularly That's what through I, the lens of... I saw broadly as what this essay was talking about and trying to address, but it's not... Once you've read the whole thing, he actually does tie it together at the end in a very funny way, which we'll talk about, in a way that I really, really enjoyed and was a fantastic ending to this. But especially in the middle of this piece... Yeah, yeah, we won't spoil it. Stick around, because when we get to it, the, the end yeah, is really Yeah, at the end, good. we will spoil it. Because <laughs> the, the ending is fantastic. It's just... It's truly wonderful. <laughs> he, lost, he lost me there for about I 80% was... of it. He, he got me in... He got me in the door, then he lost me there for the middle chunk, and then at the end he, he brought me back, yeah, back home. Chunk. I was like, all right, all right, I can fight. Let's fucking do it. <laughs> yeah. Broadly, it's like the first third I was reading it, and I thought, oh, this is, this is actually fun. I'm having a good time. Middle third, it was pretty – it was a slog. I didn't that have wasn't fun. The middle third. Yeah. Last, last, third, <laughs> last third is just it's, – it's so audacious. It's, it's just really funny. It's really fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So work. Your question 
before we started recording of what is he trying to, what problems is he trying to solve with this essay is very is legitimate. Another way of asking the question, which would be a slightly, it brings in the context of what he's writing about a little bit. It's like, what is his problem situation? And his mm, problem situation mm. is not just the problem itself, like at a first level analysis, but like what's the surrounding sort of socio-cultural mm. historical context. So if he's writing it like early 2010s, let me see. So that was uh, Obama's second, second term in the US. Was Brexit around around then as well? Or Brexit was a little bit No, later. that, that um, was 2016. 2012s, man. I was just in uni. I was a little baby. Yeah, um, he was. He was pretty ahead of his crazy. time, actually. I do feel like this essay in 2023 is more relevant than it was in 2012. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, but then again, I was just playing Diablo three in 2012 and just like, <laughs> you know, just just being a fucking 18 year old. Like, I didn't know what I was. wasn't paying attention to anything um, outside of like my my immediate environment in front of my face. So, um, yeah, I, I think like. It's hard for me to say, like, but it seems as though it's aged extremely well. And the problem situation, I would Mm. say, is like there seems to be a post, uh, and I I think we've we've touched on this so many times in our other episodes, like even when we spoke about Jung Mm. um, and Yav and stuff, or there's this like giant rift in, I'll just say, like broadly speaking, Western civilization. But you could say to the degree that the rest of the world is Westernizing its effect on the rest of the world, which is like where. Where does this thing go without God? <laughs> like, what do we yeah. do now? <laughs> yes. Um, like, especially without God, like, in our institutions, because especially in, even in a country like Australia, I know some people think, you know, this, uh, like, they'll say, like, oh, Australia is a Christian country or whatever, but, like, at the end of the day, we've got constitutionally protected freedom of religion. We're multi-religious, like there's Muslims, there's atheists, there's people from all sorts. So our institutions are actually like secular and they don't discriminate. You don't get extra benefits for being Christian. Um, And I think that's the case in a lot of places. And so where do our institutions go as our society becomes more and more secular, potentially more atheist, Mm. maybe, maybe not, Um, like what happens to the institutions? What's this like? Where's the direction of this entire civilizational thing going? It seems as though there's been this rise of what Yavin's called the cathedral, which is dominating Western culture and is very censorship oriented, very authoritarian, um, doesn't, has a very narrow, um, what's it called? Window of dialogue. The, mm. um, what's that kind of called? Whatever it's called. The, it's, yeah, the Overton window. So like, You've got that, and then you've got like these reactions against it, and that's what he's trying mm. to sort out. And his exit strategy yeah. is fantastic. <laughs> the the, the exit strategy is truly wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and this is actually this is before he started writing Bitcoin as well. Is he now writes he's writing a book on Bitcoin? And uh, I was listening to to an interview with Nick Land where he's talking about how <laughs> Bitcoin that might be the Bitcoin one Bitcoin book I don't read is in an abstract sense, indistinguishable from pure Kantian critique. (laughs) 
I should actually send you that. I think you'd I really, really enjoy means. talking about it. <laughs> I, I, I just don't understand what that means to me. <laughs> like, I've spent a lot of time studying studying Bitcoin. And He's going to approach it from means. a very different perspective, I think. Before we start to actually, it would probably be good to to situate this particular essay within the broader framework of Land's thought. Land is best known for this particular philosophical movement called accelerationism. He didn't start it, but he certainly set off a particular strand of accelerationism, which is, I guess, ironically enough, actually picking up momentum now. It continues to get more popular. Like when I say more popular, it's far from normy. It's still niche, but yeah, the particular, it is the particular popular. brand of uh, Landian Landian accelerationism is the sort where he proposes to uh, rate five stars the book club from hell and recommend to a friend. That's what he's accelerating. Yeah, that he's is accelerating very, very important. The ascent part. of the book club from hell. <laughs> That's an yeah. important form of acceleration. <laughs> No, no. It is really interesting. And like I, I do want to preface all of this, as usual, by saying that I am an infallible source of knowledge when it comes to Nick Land and accelerationism and everything I say is... <laughs> total authoritarian source. Is, of yeah, it's completely correct. I the manifest truth is self-evident when it pours out of Jack's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> So in, I was about to say in short, but I know myself, this is not going to be a remotely short explanation. I just, I'm just incapable of saying anything succinctly. So you don't come here for the terseness. No, fuck no. This episode's going to be like three hours, I can feel it. So, the way Nick Land puts it is capitalism, he seems to view as this immutable fact of the universe. It's not actually... So the Marxist definition of capitalism will emphasise, okay, who owns the means of production and how do human beings engage with each other in terms of social relations? It's capital-mediated social relations. Land regards capitalism as almost this this complexity-generating law of the universe. So... You have the Big Bang, and the universe is just hydrogen and some helium. Then you get stars. Within stars, you start getting the generation of heavier elements beyond hydrogen, helium, and a bit of lithium. Eventually, you get planets, which is much more complex. And then on at least one planet that we're aware of, on Earth, you start to get even more complex chemical reactions. Than, than, say, fusion reactions within a star. Eventually, those start forming genetic material, which, compared to hydrogen and helium, is extremely complex. And that genetic material, they, they, these self-replicating genes, eventually form, form biological life around them. And at each stage of this increasing complexity you're getting an acceleration of, of reactions, but also of self-replication and an acceleration in terms of generating increasing complexity. And then, so you've got, say, single-celled prokaryotes, you get eukaryotes, 
and then you get multicellular organisms. And again, at each stage, the complexity is increasing and the ability to generate more complexity is also increasing. You can already see where this, this idea of acceleration comes from. It's, it's, it's accelerating. Then eventually we get to humans. You get this new dimension of acceleration and complexity formation in terms of idea generation. So in non-human animals, you, you do get this. So, for example, a dog will have some concepts, but dogs are not able to communicate concepts at nearly the same resolution that humans can. So within humans, you've got this, this layer of complexity generation, which is above the biological in terms of its ability to generate more complexity. And the biological is above the, the chemical in terms of being able to generate more complexity. And land traces this. Land then takes this and goes, okay, human cultures, up until he says the Renaissance, have these particular memes which slow growth. They have this way of preventing runaway idea generation. And he uses the, the terminology of, of um, Deleuze and Guattari of territorialization and deterritorialization. So territorialization is generating a stable entity through negative feedback loops in the, in the Landian sense. So pre-European Renaissance cultures were territorializing in that they had all of these cultural negative feedback loops to prevent an explosion of, of complexity and of self-reinforcing complexity and intelligence. However, in the Renaissance, something happened. Something happened in Europe, and he says it coincides with the introduction of the concept of zero into Europe, mixed with the, the political decentralization of Europe, he says that this was the moment when you started ripping away these cultural guardrails. He, he describes it as you've got a, a fissile pile and these cultural negative feedback mechanisms were kind of like the, were these things that stopped it from going critical, stopped it beginning to react with itself in an uncontrollable way. And you slowly start pulling these out. And as such knowledge starts allowing the generation of more knowledge in an exponential way. And that just keeps accelerating. And he then, he says, okay, well now that process is run away. And when he wrote this, this was the case. It's even more the case in 2023. Knowledge generation is generating more knowledge, which generates more knowledge, which is just spinning cultural norms out like, out of orbit, they're just like shooting away from whatever center of gravity they were previously anchored to. We're eventually going to create non-human intelligences, which will probably replace us. He he in earlier work says, you know, humans will not. Some, I'm paraphrasing. Humans will not survive modernity, or humans won't be around for it. And then those particular post-human intelligences will continue to generate intelligences and. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen beyond that horizon. It's <laughs> highly unpredictable. But that's the that's the basic framework of his accelerationist thought that there is this this fundamental aspect of the universe that tends towards in a general sense increasing entropy but within isolated pockets self-reinforcing com- um complexity. 
and human beings, particularly in modernity, are a sort of the the greatest gradient of that. And I, I wanted to say that just to contextualize what we're going to be talking about now. So that's not in the Dark Enlightenment. He's but having that, a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, that definitely informs this this essay. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. I wish I'd read that before I read this. <laughs> Where did you hear that? Was that from that podcast? Yeah, I listened to a bunch of interviews with Nick Land because I find those so much easier to follow than his older writings. Oh, you went deep. Wow. His, his yeah, older writings are deep. really hard nice. work. Jack's bringing his A-game to this fucking episode, man. I better step it up. <laughs> <laughs> like his... Things like Meltdown, which is an earlier essay of his, is really difficult to to get everything out of because it's very dense. It's really fun because of how it's written, but I don't pretend to really understand it either. And also in in talking about what land means by accelerationism, I'm not completely sure that I got it right. That's the that's my my studied misreading of his his work. Landian, Landian accelerationism. Yeah, so maybe a little bit more background on the idea of accelerationism. We've covered at least one accelerationist. Depends whether or not. So um, Mike what, Ma. How seriously you take Mike Ma? No, well, he is an accelerationist, but it depends whether or not you consider Kaczynski an accelerationist. Because um, he... Some, some I would say the, the opposite. So Kaczynski was saying that we need to just yeah. stop technological progress, whereas stop Land completely. Yeah. Well, Land both seems to think that it's it's inevitable. Like it doesn't matter what we think if we want it to go on or not. It it will go on irrespective of our yeah. wishes. But he also wants to lean into it for. Uh, I won't give and away his exit strategy, but <laughs> his exit strategy involves leading into acceleration. The xenofeminists. The yeah, xenofeminists are probably yeah, accelerationists, yeah, yeah. although they weren't explicitly accelerationists, were they, in that particular... Yeah, so you, you can liberate women from, from certain biological yeah, aspects yeah. of femininity by just going post-human. Yeah, yeah. So if I introduced an axis into... I, I use... When I'm thinking through understanding different ideas, I sometimes uh, try to place them on different axes. Um, it's not always helpful. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not relevant. I can't find a relevant axis. And sometimes I wonder whether or not I'm doing a dimensionality reduction of the idea space <clears throat> and like losing, uh, losing too much information when I introduce the axis. But, uh, like some of the axes are like centralization versus decentralization, authoritarianism mm. versus like liberty, um, there's there's other things uh, like private ownership of capital versus public ownership of capital, um, statism, anarchism. Like there's these axes that you can introduce. They're like, oh yeah, do this? Do any of these apply? Uh, open versus closed, concrete versus um, abstract, um, like like Kantian um, ethics are more abstract than say like ethics based on tribal kinship relations. Um, so these, mm. these mm. axes can be helpful with this one in particular. It seems as though there's almost like a, a future past, um, axis that you could introduce, which yeah. would be like Evola is very past oriented. He's looking into the past and he sees mm. the golden ages in the past. Right. And that would also be th- people like, uh, 
yeah, anybody who kind of thinks like you know, even 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 um, what's his McKenna? McKenna's like thinking the golden age is in the past. Yeah, and yeah, very past oriented. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas like people like um, Nick Land are saying the golden age is in the future, and Marx is saying the golden age is in the future. Lenin says the golden age is in the future, um, and to the degree that that Mike Ma is like a bit of a shit shit. Shit eater, <laughs> like a bit, not shit eater. Sorry, um, <laughs> a bit of a, a bit of an edge lord. Sorry, he's he's uh, he he yeah. says the 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 future, the golden age is in the future. Um, and there's a sense of like, okay, but for whatever reason, right now sucks. <laughs> like we don't like the way the world is now, and either we need to make the world more like the past, in some hyperborean golden age or something, or we need to make it more like some theoretical ideal towards which we need to push society and marx was probably the first modern philosopher who really like brought acceleration in and the idea of like okay like sort of like later marx like the the early marx's work where he sort of like he had at least two different phases where one he was more like you can't really do anything about it and then another phase where he's like oh no you can actually do something about it and, and accelerate it um mm. and lenin was definitely an accelerationist so um by like bringing in the the revolutionary vanguard to accelerate the totalitarian yeah to accelerate the, uh, the history. so or to just skip them yeah yeah or just skip so like but the the basic idea is like there's this closed state not necessarily closed state because i don't think that nick land so that's the other thing i think if you combine these two axes closed versus open and future oriented versus past oriented then you have the idea that you could be future oriented towards a closed state which would be like Marx. Mm. We're going to accelerate towards mm. a closed future, and that closed future is utopian, and it'll be then it'll become like the the proletariat classless society is a static society. There'll be no more change mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because we'll have achieved utopia, the perfect social structure. Whereas like Evola is like we need to go back to the past, a decelerationist. We need to get rid of all this technology liberal crap, and we need to go back to like. But we're still going back to a closed society, a static society. Um, whereas, like Nick Land is kind of saying, like, way with Evelyn, no, we want to accelerate cyclical return to the yeah. past. Like you push through the Kali Yuga by going, <laughs> yeah, into the cyclical, future, which cyclically yeah, yeah. returns you to the past. <laughs> yeah. So I guess another axis that you could introduce would be like, is it cyclical or non-cyclical? Um, yeah, which would yeah, be yeah, interesting yeah. as well, but I, uh, I won't pick up on that. But Nick Land would be like, we're accelerating into an open future. It's non-cyclical, and but there's also nothing that we can really do about it except for accelerate it because it's going to happen anyway. Because capitalism mm-hmm. is this like a, like metaphysical complexifying force that is just making mm-hmm. the universe more and more complex, and we're going to be um, obsoleted by our creation of artificial general yeah. intelligence. So all we've got to do is just go into that future as fast as we can. <laughs> and it's interesting what you were saying earlier about him seeing a golden age in the future, and it's just. I, it's not clear to me to what extent he thinks it will be a golden age or not, because in some ways he seems quite nihilistic about it. That there's a there's a reasonable yeah, chance that humans simply won't exist, and whether he means that by yeah, so Homo the- sapiens will have will have been exterminated or will have just been so outcompeted that we won't exist, or we will have evolved to some some species that succeeds Homo sapiens in which case it could be more hopeful. It's unclear because yeah. <laughs> Nick Land is not the clearest 
writer, or at least for me, I find him difficult. That said, people shouldn't be scared off by reading from reading The Dark Enlightenment if they're interested, because this is this is remarkably well by Nick Lane standards. But I think he likes the future. Just based on that episode that you sent me, it seems like he's pro future. Mm. Not necessarily saying that it would be a golden age per se, but he's just saying like mm. he definitely seemed to like it. He likes where capital. I think he likes it. He's excited it by it. He's not yeah. that specific. I, at the very it. least, you'd say he's yeah. very excited by it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the chaos of it. <laughs> but then he reads his chaotic, like neutral, future oriented. Some of the things he describes don't sound like pure hell. Yeah, but isn't that also kind of fiction? No, like he's playing with fiction too. Well, with Nick Land, it's always it's hard to tell, but it's also okay. So this does bring up like the fiction thing brings up one of his better known concepts, which is hyperstition. Which is it's just such a fucking Nick Land word, hyperstition. It's it, it has the word hyper in it, which immediately in Nick Land parlance means it's it means it's really cool because he he's like he's got the nineties. Hacker like green CRT text coming down you the screen, black trench coat and wrap around yeah, speed yeah, yeah, dealer yeah. sunnies. Hacker aesthetic. Where if you just put he like fucking love the matrix hyper in front out. of something, you know it immediately shit. makes it futuristic and cool. But hyperstition, like hyper superstition, it's this. It's a fictional concept which, in some metaphysical sense, by existing, makes itself. Non-fiction. It makes itself reality. And so, bearing in mind his idea of hyperstition, this melding of philosophy and quote-unquote fiction begins to make sense if you, tr- if you truly believe that there are certain ideas which can start life as fictional but are hyperstitional in that once, they, once humans are exposed to them, those ideas start manifesting themselves in reality by altering human behavior. Yeah, I see why he likes Bitcoin. He could definitely, he's definitely, <laughs> yeah, he, loves, he really likes Bitcoin. 100%. Yeah, he, he probably fucking loves Bitcoin with those sorts of ideas. Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a hyperstitional entity. Yeah, 100%. The white, the white paper began in, depending on your definition of, of fiction, it began as a story in some sense, and then hyperstitionally began to instantiate itself in reality. Yeah, converting vast amounts of energy into hashes. SHA-256. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Fucking, I'm, not, I'm just going to stop myself before I go on a Bitcoin rant. All right, back to Nick Land. <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin. Fucking, I love Look, Bitcoin. If I Nick Land Bitcoin, finishes so his Bitcoin book, I'm sure we can read it, and you can, you can oh enjoy God, approaching love Bitcoin it. from... <laughs> From a continental philosophical perspective, <laughs> I was I was scuba diving the other day, and I was just before we went scuba, we went in the water. Like my girlfriend said what, to what, one of what are the, the stages of Levi, the views of Levi. There's the Bitcoin Levi, which inevitably leads to the scuba diving Levi. <laughs> scuba Levi and Bitcoin Levi. Oh my god, I love scuba diving. <laughs> <laughs> I love scuba diving. I love Bitcoin as well. They're amazing. <laughs> uh, but I, we were sitting just before we went in the water and we talked to one of the other scuba divers. And I said, uh, somebody said something about Bitcoin. And, and my girlfriend 
said, oh, Levi loves Bitcoin. <laughs> I'm just like, don't bring up Bitcoin at all. <laughs> like, like I'll, cause I'll just talk about it. And the guy asked me, um, the guy asked me, he's like, oh yeah, like I was wondering about, should I buy some Bitcoin or whatever? And I was like, you know, like, what do you think? Like, do you know much about Bitcoin? I'm like, yeah, like I specifically studied bit, like <laughs> distributed computing so I could understand Bitcoin. Like, and <laughs> I was like, okay, well, you know, it depends what, like what sort of things are you interested? Oh, I could literally sit here for like eight hours and just talk to you about Bitcoin. <laughs> so, you about Bitcoin. Yeah. I had to really fucking constrain myself because, yeah, otherwise I would have just spoken at him for like an hour. Um, well, for you particularly, so, particularly, uh, so you're in a scuba, you're in the context <laughs> of scuba diving as an activity, and if you can talk about Bitcoin and then link it to David Deutsch and Karl Popper, scuba diving, you've just got the Levi feedback loop. It's just a positive feedback, an accelerationist <laughs> feedback loop that you can't break out of. The acceleration of Levi's interiority. Yeah, yeah. Well, because also on the way back home after, yeah, I know, I'm fucking, I'm so cooked. I don't know why I even, why do I even exist? <laughs> I, um, on the way home, because uh, we went for a muck dive. So a muck dive is like when you jump, when you, when you like look at the sand and the rocks and you go, you don't go to the coral or whatever, because there's really weird stuff in Indonesia and Malaysia and these sorts of places. I'm sure it's also in other parts of the world, but especially in the tropics, the water's f- fucking teeming with life, right? And uh, in the in the mud, there's heaps of life, but it's really weird life. It's like like frogfish, scorpion fish, like weird seahorses. And we went at night, so all this weird stuff comes down. There's a little, there's these things called orangutan crabs, little hairy little crabs, like all this weird life. Anyways, I'm heading home on the scooter, <clears throat> and uh, my girlfriend's in front of me, I'm scooting home. And uh, I had this, like, realisation, and it's relevant to this Nick Land conversation because it's about this, like, uh, what's the creation of um, of all this, like, this capitalism stuff. I've been thinking about this problem for, like, a couple of years now. Like, what is technology? How does it work? Why is there more of it? And I had this, like, massive breakthrough about, like, what are humans doing with the creation of knowledge and how do we actually bring things into reality and all this sort of stuff. And I got home and I was like to my girlfriend, hey, I figured out this thing. Just talking to her for like an hour. And she's like, Levi, I need to go to bed. (laughs) Yeah, love this shit. So I think what Nick Land's going on about is I think he's very close to the mark. I see things a little bit differently to him because I think that like, because of the influence of Deleuze and probably Marx and stuff to a certain degree on his thinking and Kant, he gets very metaphysical. And I think that's gets, where... That, that's an understatement. <laughs> it gets very <laughs> metaphysical. Whereas like, I, I think like when you veer into metaphysics, you can sort of, you can make claims about entities or processes that you can't falsify. That you, you can just say, well, is it, this class system is it this thing quote unquote capitalism is it quote unquote complexity is it the geist is it the whatever like take your but you can't really like distinguish between any of them because they're dressed up in metaphysics you can't like say well this one exists and this one doesn't exist so that's where i i draw this line at metaphysics where i always try to constrain my thinking to think through like what's the actual physical computational process or entity that's affecting this this thing process in the world mm. but i won't like bludgeon you with my thoughts about it because we're here to talk about nick land well i mean we can weave them in as we go because 
I, I imagine neither yeah. of us completely agree with him, but it is a fascinating read. I like what he's, he's trying really to do. Really he's trying smart to think guy. through this. A highly, highly unusual yeah. thinker. And it's a, it's a lot of fun seeing him, again, don't know how much meth he was smoking while he was writing this specifically, but it's, it is pretty fun seeing him, even when he's relatively constrained, as is the case with the Dark Enlightenment, just shooting ideas out continuously, just all the time in all directions, which has its problems. It can make, it can make reading it. Yeah, it's really cool. You can have that feeling of, <laughs> what are you trying to tell me? But it can also be really fun when he gets a bit more focused. He could have, he just needed to edit it. Like, if he had written his article, like, there's like six or seven of them. No, there's how many are there? Six plus three, and there's nine. So, um, there's nine sections. No, there's 10 sections because one of them is an extra section. Um, so, there's 10 sections. If he had just written it and then not published it straight away and just come back to it and, re- and like reorganize his thoughts a bit, it would have improved it a lot. Because there's a lot of gems in there. I really like it. Mm. So should we get, get on to the first section of the, of the book? Do you want to um, start us off with... Uh, so the first section is called Neo-Reactionaries Head for the Exit. There's a really interesting idea with, like, how can you enact your will on the world, especially as just an individual part of a large society? Um, you can vote. If you're in a democracy, you can vote. That allows you to have some input into the political process. Mm-hmm. You have a voice, so you can go and go to rallies or try to speak to the media or speak to your politicians or, you know, do like what we're doing, create a podcast or whatever, or just speak on social media. So you've got vote, you've got voice. <clears throat> you've also got spending. So as a consumer, you're helping control, like through the uh, Austrian mm-hmm. economics perspective, which I think is not really a perspective. It's just actually what's happening. You're in a little tiny way controlling the means of production um, by your consumption behaviours. So as the vast murmurations of consumer behaviour fluctuate, different industries will become more or less relevant and different parts of the production process will be eliminated. Um, mm. Or be in an ab- abstract sense, you could regard that as voice as well. Yeah, it is voice, and you know, like, yeah, and so there's definitely some overlap between these different things. Um, so there's vote, voice, spending, and um, and exit. Exit being mm-hmm. all right. Well, things have gone bad enough in my jurisdiction that I actually need to leave. Um, <clears throat> really obvious. Places where you have these four, there might there might be other ways as well. Like I'm just thinking, but um, those are the ones that I've read more about. Um, like a really obvious example of a country where essentially all four of those are severely suppressed is like North Korea, for example. Mm. Like their entire police state, for example, is designed not to keep people out, but to keep people in. <laughs> like nobody's trying to go to mm-hmm. North Korea, immigrate to North Korea. <laughs> people are trying to get the fuck out and their army and their police state is trying to keep people in because they're all enslaved. They don't really have economic rights and, you know, they don't have a voice and they don't vote. So they don't have any of those things. Whereas like in other countries like Australia, you know, we have all of those things pretty much. Um, 
and different democracies or different Western liberal democracies like might make it more or less hard to do those things, like put things in your way or like tax you more or less or whatever. But for you know, broadly speaking, if you're living in the US, if you're living in Australia, if you're living in the UK or Canada, with the occasional blip of crap like we saw over the last couple of years with COVID or the authoritarianism that came out, like we're still in a relatively open part of the world where you can leave, vote with your dollars, vote with your voice, vote with your vote. Um, yeah, so sorry, that that's why the four forms of voting. <laughs> you can vote with your vote, vote with your wallet, vote with your feet, mm. um, or vote with your voice. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things that's going on at the moment is uh, exit. And a lot of people like Nick Land, and again, foreshadowing the end of the, he's got a very creative form of exit is just chef's the, the, kiss the ultimate the ultimate the ultimate the ultimate <laughs> exit the ultimate exit which i fucking loved um you know for example as a bitcoiner as a as a as a as a bitcoin um am i a bitcoin maximalist i'm yeah well i guess i am a bitcoin maximalist as i'm a bitcoin maximalist money but enjoyer. that's just because i'm a as a, that's just because I'm a sensible person who doesn't like having my wealth stolen from me. So <laughs> like, if you also don't like having your wealth stolen off you, then you should also be a Bitcoin maximalist. So I love um, being finned on by uh, the government. I'm all for it. I want, yeah. I, want more I just inflation. don't understand. Like, just think about it this way. As it's not, but here's the thing, man. It's not that. It's not just the government. Like people, people think that we have a fiat money system. We don't have a fiat money system. We have a fiat credit system. It's even worse. It's this. It's this. It's this dog shit like mess of a system where it's not just the government doing helicopter money. It's also fractional reserve banking allows the banks to print money, and the banks are expanding it through credit expansion. And we have no distinguishing the layers of our monetary system. Don't distinguish between when you when you receive payment from somebody's credit card versus their like their checking account. You can't tell the difference. So as people get more and more this. credit, we're I actually expanding the money system. Anyway, step on me, mummy banking. System. So you can stomp so on me. So it's the banking system. It's it's other people who who are taking out consumer credit loans are also destroying the currency. Like the entire system's fucked. And if you just don't want to participate in that because you think that's fucking ridiculous, it's a completely ridiculous system, then you should be a Bitcoin maximalist. You should buy hard money that has an absolute 21 million cap and that there won't be any more of and that nobody can just come along and print more of. And there, you're a Bitcoin maximalist. You're not a Bitcoin maximalist. You're just a sensible person. Um, so, yeah, so that is a form of exit. That's an economic exit. And as Michael Saylor yeah. would say, that's like that's like... He's got this great speech at the Atlas Society where he talks about like Bitcoin is gold gulch, and he's right. He said he said actually he put it really nicely. Michael Saylor said, uh, uh, "Ayn Rand advocated that we remove your that you remove your labor from a corrupt economy." Well, that's not really an option, you know, because unless you want to go and like be self sufficient on a farm, you're not going to do that. So. Instead of removing your labor from a corrupt economy, remove your money from a corrupt economy. Take your fiat money, convert as much of it as you can to Bitcoin, and then slowly exit. Slowly and peacefully exit. So, who are the neo reactionaries then? And what are they trying to exit from? And mm. and mm. why are they trying to exit? What is it that they're that they're they're exiting? Maybe Jack, do you want to speak about who the neo reactionaries are? Yeah, so 
what he does. So what you were saying earlier about these different forms of voting, land collapses that into basically voice and exit. Voice is almost synonymous with interaction with. So you can interact with a system or you can exit. What's a system being interacted with? I do. I like Dugan's terminology, as, as many problems as I have with Dugan. His definition of post-liberalism as this, this, sort, this crusading internationalist religion of trying to make the entire world basically look like liberal democratic America, or at least sort of the, the coastal parts of the United States, I think is... Yeah, San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a reasonable... It's a real thing, which for Dugan is not... It's not a given that he's going to talk about things that actually exist. So, <laughs> effectively, this, yeah. this post-liberal society <laughs> or this post-liberal memeplex spreading out into the world is what Nick Land... Nick Land talks about exit strategies from that. We'll get into why, why voice within such a paradigm only ever helps the, the further ratcheting of increased state power of post-liberalism. The only way you can interact with it in, in any sort of meaningful way that doesn't just reinforce the power of post-liberalism is exit. And that, in a very, very dimensionally reduced way, is the, I think, the basic idea of neo-reaction. It, how do you exit post-liberalism? So who would be some neo-reactionaries? That would be good to point out. So the, listeners the one that Nick Land of... particularly likes is Curtis Yarvin, also known as <laughs> Mencius Moldbug. He quotes him that we also extensively like. here. <laughs> and yeah, I, I actually do, you know, like even after getting over like the initial reading of, of Yarvin's stuff and just like being a little bit exhausted by reading his stuff, like I actually kind of, I have a, I have a place in my heart for Yarvin. I have a real a soft spot for Curtis Yarvin. <laughs> a bit. He, off, a bit. <laughs> I, I, I like him even more because I find his writing style and particularly how he speaks so incredibly irritating, but I just wouldn't have it any other way. If when I listened to Curtis Yarvin interviewed, I didn't get really annoyed, it's like, just get to the fucking point. Then it's just, it's just not the same. It's, it's not the Curtis really, Yarvin experience. If he, he's like the if epitome he just of, uh, succinctly gets of the, to the point, the doesn't start fucking talking about Carlyle or some poem he read the other day. <laughs> or lecturing on some <laughs> obscure aspect of history. This wouldn't be the Curtis Yarvin experience. I kind of I, like that he just doesn't give a shit. He <laughs> like, just do his own thing. Good yeah. on him. As a statement of Yarvinite Yeah, so that's one neo-reactionary. This, this essay is really good. Yeah. I, I said this earlier. If people like Yarvin, then this yeah. is an easy recommend. So who else would be a neo-reactionary? I was thinking through this because Spandle. when I first thought... The Dark Enlightenment. I thought Spandrel. Bio-Leninism, right? Yeah, Bio-Leninism. I think it's Parallax Optics or... Yeah. I think that's, this, I think that's the person's name. Mike Maher's not a neo-reactionary, is he? Probably, I regard Mike Maher as more of an entertainer than necessarily a thinker, whereas mm. Curtis Yarvin, Nick Land, Spandrel for all Spandrel's problems, are... Offering more theory and critique <laughs> rather than like edgelord novels. So I originally, when I was going into this 
um, thought, oh, the Dark Enlightenment, wasn't uh, Sam Harris called a part of the... Wasn't Peterson and Sam Harris and... Uh, what's, no, what's that, that was the intellectual dark name? web, um, which <laughs> just... Oh, the intellectual Such dark a gross web, term. right. So I got confused. Oh, yeah. Such a wank. Yeah. <laughs> what a wank. And, uh, but I don't see who gets off on, I mean, I think in this case, like, I don't know, are they, is uh, Nick Land being kind of tongue-in-cheek with, like, claiming this word or something? Like, just, um, who's to say that, like, Peterson or or whoever, um, uh, like that physicist, his, I find him really annoying. And his brother's oh, the, a biologist. Uh, someone Weinstein. podcast. Eric Weinstein. Eric, Eric, Eric and Brett. Brett is the biologist. Eric yeah. Weinstein, yeah. Um, Eric Weinstein he, is like, the one who will be able to collapse any concept in human history into a three-letter abbreviation and then just start spouting that off at every opportunity. He's irritating, but he's not funny irritating like Curtis Yarvin. And then somehow relate it to... To a sp- sp- spindle, yeah. So he's just irritating, yeah. Um, uh, so <clears throat> I'm sure he's a nice guy. <laughs> um, I listen to come a lot on of the this podcast if you're listening. But he's just yeah, I don't know, like yeah, Eric Weinstein. I don't know, like give him give him a chance. Maybe he's chilled out a little bit now. He definitely went through a bit of a stick up his ass phase there for a while. So like, um, anyways, I was thinking like. Why are these people even characterized as like whether it's the intellectual dark web or the dark enlightenment? What what is this like? It's not like um, Yarvin is advocating for like fucking like a new holocaust or something. It's like all all they're doing is they're putting out like alternative ideas to the sort of intellectual mainstream coming out of the Western Academy, and yet they're I kind of in in a weird way like I see what what um, Nick Land. And Yarvin and stuff are talking about. They're saying like these things are off topic. Like say talking about race or talking about um, you know if you wanted to critique transgenderism or if you wanted to critique any of these things, you're going to be labelled as like the the worst of the worst, like criminal scum, piece of shit. And you can't mm. talk about A, B, and C. And if you do, we're going to like blow up your career. We're going to get you fired from work, or we're going to ostracise you, or whatever. And but when did when did that like weird form of it's not exactly it's not directly um, like thought police uh, expression control like they would have in like North Korea or China, but it's this kind of softer sort of like social um, immune system towards not even I think not even like extremely horrendous ideas, but just like alternative ideas but even then mm. even if they were really horrendous ideas like just straight up neo-nazi stuff it's like <clears throat> isn't the point of living in an open society where we like we fight ideas with ideas instead of fighting ideas with getting people fired or like trying to like just make their life miserable like everything short of putting them in jail mm. so they are so i i i i i I'm not saying I agree with these people necessarily. I'm just saying that I think like it's weird to characterize a particular intellectual movement as like the dark enlightenment or the intellectual dark mm. web. Well, I think they, they claim that not, title for themselves. They're not even like, doing Nick, anything. Nick Land, the, the name yeah, of this yeah. is the dark enlightenment. Like, Bit of a he's, he's embracing that. He's yeah, selected yeah, yeah. this genre of music <laughs> for himself. 
<laughs> yeah. So maybe I'm maybe I'm getting off on my high horse for nothing. <laughs> yeah. <But> in- <laughs> I'm just anticipating the day when like when you and I, if we grow this podcast enough, and then like some butthurt fucking like mainstream media pundit, like some talking head off ABC National or something, picks up. It's like, oh, this these two bloody people, like, what do they think they are? It's like, ah, oh, fuck you, man. <laughs> that would be so fucking good because that's free advertising. That <laughs> yeah, would be yeah, that yeah, would be incredible. <laughs> It'd be absolutely fantastic. Yeah, look, it's the sort of thing I don't really anticipate it will happen, but it's also not the sort of thing I'm particularly worried about. I don't think any of them will, would notice us. I don't think so. We'll just keep on building our little, uh, little, little, uh, little weird subculture <laughs> over here yeah. in our little part of the internet. <laughs> so back to what you were saying before about voice versus exit, and a culture of not governmental censorship. Well, in some cases it is governmental censorship, but social social reduction of voice expression. Nick Land talks about this by effectively saying that post-liberalism has become a a religion. Or it always it always was. It's just becoming more obvious. And he says it's of the particularly the Protestant Calvinist tradition, it's Protestant Calvinist um, emphasis on moral purity and faith, but then shorn of a belief in Jesus Christ and the Word of God and the Bible. And so you, you have these particular things that Christianity is preoccupied with. So, say, helping others, charity, you take away God, and those things start growing off in strange directions without that ballast. Hence the, the increased focus on groups that are seen as weak or oppressed. Hence the, the hyper-focus on race and needing to promote racial justice, the need to correct past wrongs uh, that, that are regarded as social injustices. And I think there is something, there's something to that. I think a lot of the, the modern social justice movement is a strange Christianity. And then in terms of its intolerance of things that disagree yeah. with it, well, that, that's just religious behaviour. Like it's, it's not all that surprising when extremely, extremely sincere Christians don't like other religions because they have, they have the only religion that's true. In a similar sense, post-liberal religion or ideology behaves like just about any other religion when its adherents are sufficiently... Um, sufficiently fervent in their belief, they don't like people from other religions. Hence why when people break the particular moral precepts of post-liberalism, people get angry at them like because they're, they're a, a group of sincere religious people hearing something heretical. Yeah, so Nick Land calls this universalism, this mm. secular And I think that's from religion. Curtis Yarvin. He calls it universalism. Yeah, so that's what we'll refer to it as. Yeah, actually, yeah, I should I should refer to it as universalism, not post liberalism. Yeah, and it's that sort of like constellation of like secular uh, moral purity without a god mm. uh, in the form of things like social justice. Um, but he had he also has this interesting. The other thing I'll pull. I've got some quotes here that I want to read out. Um, yeah, I've got a lot of quotes, but. In particular, he, he, yeah, yeah, there's, he's, he's got some good ones. Um, 
<clears throat> he also talks about democracy, so a big part of this. And mm-hmm. I'm sure at some point we'll read Hans Hermann Hopp, Hopper. Yeah, we've got it. We've just it's been referenced to. Yeah, many so times. there's this one. Go- there's this one book in particular by Hopper called "Democracy: The God That Failed," which to me I find very like counterintuitive because he like he's basically disagreeing with Popper. So like he was really Hopper was basically very influenced by Popper, and I really like Popper. But then Hopper didn't take after Popper. He actually went, nah, fuck democracy. <laughs> democracy is the problem yeah. here. <laughs> and went off in a different direction. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I I found that really interesting. I've been reading Hopper's work um, on on property rights. So every now and then, Jack will get a message from me <laughs> on Discord. Yeah, just like, how much I, I love, love property, property rights. rights. <laughs> no other context. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Levi. Because... <laughs> Yeah, it's so good. I so, I so like this is why I want to read Democracy: The God That Failed because I'm so interested to see like how I see what they're saying. So what what they're saying, and I actually think Nick Land has a really good discussion of this because this is a really mm. important point. This is like one of the big challenges that our generation is on the cusp of facing. Like, is this issue around like, hey, there's all these checks that have been written by the baby boomers over the last sort of like 20 to 50 years around like pensions and then continuing to pay out like, and then new uh, like social schemes like uh, like in Australia there's the NDIS and all these sorts of things like this expansion of the the welfare state and all this sort of stuff. You've got to actually pay for that somehow. Like just on a practical no. level, we don't even have to like t- t- necessarily talk like No, you issue, like you issue debt po- to politics pay off the debt. about it, but you do <laughs> you're you're like taking away future wealth from people who aren't necessarily even born yet. Like you're you're putting your you're subsidizing your living expenses now using somebody else's wealth from the future who hasn't had any say in it, hasn't consented to it. And Hopper tries to Hopper and the libertarians like Rothbard are trying to basically say, hey, we've got to stop this. This is like eventually this is going to catch up with us. This is going to be really, really bad. And Hopper's solution to it was well, the issue is clearly democracy itself. <laughs> and yeah. and Nick Land is saying he says, he said, uh, he democracy said, is yeah. not a system but a vector with a direction. <laughs> he said, it's, it's, democracy is not, not, not only a system, obviously it's a system, it's not only a system but it's also a vector and that vector has a direction and mm. it bends, it's a direction leaning left. It's this ratchet for whatever reason. I don't feel as though Nick Land really like fully crystallized the mechanism properly. Maybe Hopper will. But like, there's a mechanism somewhere in all Western liberal democracies, it seems, where this thing is pushing. Like, sorry, uh, yep. Because Spandrel also brought up this point with the Cthulhu always swims left, and I thought that was completely underbaked. But then Nick Land, this would be really good to talk about because I reckon Nick Land does go into a, a reasonable amount of detail on the mechanism. I, I don't think so. I disagree with. Not. I. Th- I think. I think it's like a partial answer. I think that mm. there's something else going on. And mm. I don't necessarily know if it's like, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like cultural at the level that, that I, I have a suspicion. I don't, it's not fully formulated in my head, but I have a suspicion that it's something to do with like, almost like the mechanics of the law. It's like a mechanical, insofar as like law and institution can be mechanical. There's like this element of like game, this interaction of like the game theory of voting is like kind of ratcheting the political system so where like politicians can make left-leaning promises but then they can't go back on them once they've implemented them Mm. it's very difficult you need somebody like a reagan 
or a Margaret Thatcher who's charismatic and doesn't give a shit and will come in and just rip that shit out, um, mm. which might happen every now and then, but, like, for a while it hasn't. Like, in Australia, like, the Liberals have been, like, pretty much, like, they don't have any balls and haven't been able to do yeah. it. Like, let's, um, there's no let's real, talk, like, Let's contextualise this government. a bit yeah. and then talk about it because this is a really <laughs> – this is one of the really interesting points in this book because I just want to say to contextualise this, there are a few things. He, he disaggregates <laughs> freedom and democracy. And I think this is this is a really really important yeah. point. Yeah, and that's, one that's that interesting. Is, not yeah, only yeah. is it not made, but I sometimes suspect that it's intentionally not made, given how, given the almost religious attachment Western society has to democracy. Democracy is, in some ways, just synonymous with moral good. It is a morally good thing to do, and in in the news, in a lot of political commentary. That's, it's not even stated as a fact that the democracy is moral good. It is just accepted. It, this is just a good thing. And it's never questioned, oh, why? And then if you ask why, it's, oh, well, everyone gets a say. Why is it good that everyone gets a say? Because then everyone gets a say. So Nickland disputes that and disputes that democracy is the same as freedom. And I think that is, that is really important and that is true. And that's one of the things that he gets right. And he does that right at the start of this essay as well, which is why I think the first third of this is, is pretty good, is good. Because then what follows from that is he starts talking about how libertarians, for example, many of them obviously prefer freedom to democracy and how you'll have some of them say that these two things aren't compatible, hence we want we want to roll back democracy so that we can retain freedom. Yeah, that would be like Hopper and, and that, those types. Then from that, and this ties into what you were talking about, he goes on to talking about how democracy threatens freedom and the mechanisms yeah. by which it threatens freedom is, I suspect that's where you found some of the metaphysical stuff that you didn't like and why you, for you it's, it's a partial answer because he did get yeah. quite metaphysical in some of these parts. It's, yeah. He's sort of like, I feel like they're kind of like these people are like, they're identifying that there's a problem. There's mm. definitely a problem here. We can all see it. Like there's serious fucking issues. Like if you just think through like, oh, like there's all these baby boomers are like becoming 60, 70, 80 now in the next decade or so, we've got to pay for their medical, we've got to pay for all that sort of shit, who's going to pay for it? And there's like this net wealth transfer for the first time in history, like upwards, <laughs> or not maybe mm -hmm. for the first time in history, but like upwards, like from younger generations to pay for the cost of the, like that's not sustainable. That's mm -hmm. going to cause some issues. Um, well, it's also getting, it's going to be even worse because demographically too, we're getting older and having fewer children. So it's not only is there this structural problem, but we're demographically exacerbating it. It's like a Ponzi scheme, basically. It's like an intergenerational Ponzi mm. scheme. And I, I kind of see what people, like, people are worried about this, and it's a reasonable thing to be worried about, you know. And the way that we could subsidise this is to just let the floodgates open with immigration into the West and just bring in more labourers mm -hmm. to, like, <laughs> boost the income. For, but that'll just kick the can down the road to the next generation. So, mm. um, but anyways, like... Um, so that it's like they've got this. They're they're like they're they're. I feel as though they're kind of like honing in on the identification of like some substantive issues. Yeah, but it's like there's just this 
thing where they're not quite like arriving on it. That I f- and I think it's when they veer into like metaphysics. It's just like they lose me. Yeah. And I guess with that sort of stuff, I'm pretty forgiving in that if someone has identified a real problem or a, a collection of problems that haven't, that a good solution doesn't exist to. I'm pretty tolerant of them then searching within that idea space for how to address it. And yeah, it, it veers into yeah, that's fair. basically like neo-reactionary woo-woo with some of the metaphysical stuff. But a lot I feel like it is, it's a, a sincere attempt to try to answer these questions. And it's unpopular. Yeah. Like Nick Land yeah, has caught a huge sincere. amount of flack yeah. for, for some of the things he said in this essay. A lot of the criticism of him, I feel, is probably by people who haven't actually read this or are reading it just looking to be outraged. So, for example, with a lot of the criticisms of it, you regularly read, oh, Nick Land is a fascist, Nick Land is really racist, and so you can't listen to him. Uh, the fascism is definitely untrue. Like he's just, actually read, like, read his Really stuff. early on in this he's essay, he actually just straight out says, fascism is not going to be a viable solution to this. It's just not going to work. In terms of the racism, it's like it's one of those I accusations where I, don't think he's racist. I can't definitively say Nick Land is not racist because I don't know the guy. And even if I knew him, like I can't yeah. see his subjectivity. But at least in the context of this essay, yeah. he talks about race a lot. I'd say he's insensitive and probably like intentionally so, which is thematically important given the things he brings up. But is he out and out racist? Like I'd, I'd say like at the most ungenerous I could be, I would say it's inconclusive. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. That's that's real. I I get the sense that it's just something that he wants to be able to talk about. Yeah, like these are things that are like the bell curve stuff, whatever. And when I say at my most ungenerous. I'm I'm much more inclined to think no he's not being racist he just he wants to talk about this strange fact that racism has become a sort of a secular sin in our society particularly particularly the closer you get to government yeah. power it becomes more sinful and we'll I know we I keep saying we will discuss this we will get to why this is the case but the closer you get to central <laughs> this government will be like power, the biggest reveal ever the more sinful it gets <laughs> And that is a really interesting phenomenon. And I think that is a real phenomenon. And he's talking about the fact that he wants to yep. be able to discuss it. Yeah. We'll just keep on edging, edging you. We're going to keep listeners. edging people. <laughs> like, what's how you boost your testosterone? Well, how do you exit Edging this? Nick Land. There's this giant... There's... <laughs> You're going to be sprouting hair out of your eyeballs by the end of this episode. <laughs> this is a natural <laughs> testosterone booster. We're now selling test supplements. Jack and Levi edge you intellectually for a few hours. <laughs> Just do it every day. We're going to have a subscription <laughs> service. Land, it's like the Sam Harris to waking the up app, Except instead of meditating for 10 minutes each morning, it's us edging you about the true nature of the cathedral to boost your well, test. We've got one of those AI-enabled like um, voice chatbots that will bring you at 50 cents in it, a 50 cents a minute. It'll charge you <laughs> to like intellectually edge you about how how Nick Land is going to exit the cathedral. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to boost, triple your your free testosterone levels. <laughs> getting edged by AI Levi about Nick Land. <laughs> Actually, saying the cathedral because if people haven't listened uh, to it, Curtis so Yarvin I've got episode, a quote or aren't familiar with Curtis Yarvin, 
this is this is terminology that will be useful. Mm. Also, because Nick Land, I feel like defines it slightly differently to Curtis Yarvin. So, in short, the cathedral is a concept by yeah. the blogger Curtis Yarvin, which is basically the government, academia plus prestige media, is what he sees as the central power source in our society. That interaction between those those groups. Nickland, Nickland seems to define it more expansively than Curtis Yarvin because it's it's those things plus almost mm. the the post liberal discourse in a religious sense between them. Yeah, he almost includes almost the Holy Ghost. Yeah, Nickland includes. Yeah, Nickland brings the Holy Ghost. I think that's why the way the way to put it: universalism as the Holy Ghost. It's the it's the cultural yeah. <laughs> uh, motifs that like substantiate the institutional forms of um, the father and the son, where the father is like the state and the two sons are the prestige media. And, um, yeah, the father of the twins and the Holy Ghost. Interesting. The Holy Tetralogy. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, the, the um, academia is really like a... Uh, it's like the training wheels, isn't it? It's the school. So you got the father, the state, the son, the media, then the son is like being trained up through academia. But yeah, the twins and the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost here being universalism, like secular universalism. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. interesting. I'm going to read some quotes and you can just like stop me whenever you want <clears throat> and we can chat. Um, so Lind, one of the people he talks about, Lind and the quote neo-reactionaries seem to be in broad agreement that democracy is not only or even a system, but rather a vector with an unmistakable direction. Democracy and quote progressive democracy are syn- synonymous and indistinguishable from the expansion of the state, whilst quote extreme right-wing governments have on rare occasions momentarily arrested this process. Its reversal lies beyond the bounds of democratic possibility. Since winning elections is overwhelmingly a matter of vote buying and society's informational organs, education, media are no more resistant to bribery than the electorate, a thrifty politician is simply an incompetent politician and the democratic variant of Darwinism quickly eliminates such misfits from the gene pool. This is a reality that the left applauds, the establishment right grumpily accepts and the libertarian right has ineffectively railed against. Increasingly, however, libertarians have ceased to care whether anyone is paying them attention. They've been looking for something else entirely, an exit. Yeah, that's an interesting quote. And that does allude to the mechanism he proposes as to why he says, I'm paraphrasing, that democracy is not merely doomed, but doom itself. It, why there is this constant ratchet towards what we describe as left wing. And when he talks about left wing, I think. Because it's such a fuzzy term. He's mostly talking about expansion of bureaucratic and domesticating state power. So he actually, in the interview that you sent me, he gave an idea of like what left wing he means. He means like Mm. there's the idea of essentially capitalism. So the private ownership of the means of production and the capitalist like profit motive and the monetary stuff. And all the things that help that, like liberty and whatnot. And then he defines the left as the things that basically oppose that. So mm. um, 
that at least broadly speaking is kind of what he's thinking. So it was kind of it's really economically quite not really economically. that was in the podcast. If you think about if you think about capitalism as this latent deterritorializing force, maybe in that sense, then left something being left wing means it's it's in some way territorializing that it's seeking to slow down this positive feedback loop that capitalism is this this latent positive feedback loop and right wing is leaning into it which somewhat makes sense in that he regards so a, an interesting thing when he talks about universalism universalism being sort of this post liberal ideology which is ultimately he calls it a mystery cult of state power you look at the mm. the moral mm. goods of <laughs> like post liberal ideology anti-racism, anti-sexism, accepting gay people, accepting trans people, not in a negative sense of tolerating them, but in a positive sense of of embracing them or very publicly talking about how, how tolerant you are, this performative aspect, the positive aspect of that. He says that these things are viewed from the left as demanding greater state power and to the point where greater Mm. state power is Mm. indistinguishable from the project of, for example, fighting racism. So if you are are advocating for reducing state power, you are advocating for reducing the power to oppose racism, which is equivalent to promoting racism, so promoting this great sin, Mm. and hence why it becomes the mystery cult of state power. It's... Because the state mm. is this, mm. it's almost this, this deity which can promote all of these causes that you like or you regard as moral imperatives, you begin to, in some sense, worship state power. And so this is one of the places where he veers into metaphysics and it becomes hard mm. to prove or disprove it. I will say, though, that it is observable that the closer you get to bureaucratic state power, the more these sorts of beliefs do appear and they're stronger. Yeah. So one concept I think that's useful to bring in here, and he, Nick Land doesn't use this concept explicitly, but I think it's useful when you're thinking about these things, is uh, positive rights versus negative rights. So mm, uh, a negative mm, yeah, right yeah, would yeah. Go be over this because it's really important. Like, um, like, so like the right to not be interfered with in some capacity. So like freedom of association. Say like you can, you have the freedom to- It's like, it's the right not to do something. Yeah. Um, And so like um, freedom of thought, you know, like freedom of expression. You're not being told that you have to say a particular thing, but Mm. your right to say what you want is protected. And whereas there's there's yeah. positive rights, positive rights would be uh, you can think of like them as like claims of obligations that an individual has on the rest of society, or may, not has but makes on the rest of society. So like obligations or entitlements. So like the classic one would be like in Marx, Marx's work, and a lot of post-Marxian um, socialists claim that everybody has a right to work, and some of them even say uh, claim a right to decent work, whatever decent means. Um, And then in Mm. the UBI conversation, like the universal basic income conversation, people claim the positive right to a living salary 
even if you're not working. So these are things where the only way to fulfill that right, so to speak, is to make a claim on, is to make other people obligated to fulfill that claim in some way. Whereas like the right to your like property rights, a lot of property rights are literally about no other people just shouldn't come and fuck with my stuff. <laughs> like, or like, yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well. Um, and I, I guess I can understand if you want to, there probably could be ways to blur the line between the two of them. But largely mm. speaking, like, the left is very, 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 like, hung up on um, positive rights. So one way to think of it about it is, like, obligations on society, claims on society versus, versus like, liberties. So liberties mm. versus claims. And, uh, and at least the libertarian right uh, are trying to get away from that. They're just saying, like, I have the right to say what I want. I have the right to own property and not to have that property infringed upon by others um, coercively and so forth. Whereas the left are saying, like, no, um, you, you as an individual uh, have the right to work and employers or the state have to come and step in and actually give you that job. If, if the private market it doesn't fulfill that role, then it's a market failure and the state must step up and give you employment. Yeah, you, with positive and negative rights, you can almost think of negative rights as an empty space within which you're unconstrained and positive rights as a direction that you must follow if you want to think about it yeah. spatially. And, they're, yeah, they're, you, I think in this particular case, um, well, I've got a quote here. Um, even more than equality versus liberty, voice versus exit is the rising alternative, and libertarians are opting for voiceless flight. Patry Freeman remarks, quote, we think that free exit is so important that we've called it the only universal human right. So at the end of the day, if you can't even leave the jurisdiction, like you're so fed up with, um, say, discrimination or infringements on your property rights or constraints on your speech or association with others so and so forth at the end of the day if you can't even leave the country then you're effectively mm. a slave like um like north koreans like they can't even leave like they've got to crawl under barbed wire and sell themselves into sex slavery and stuff in order to get the fuck out um and there's a lot of people like in i would argue like china's like that like capital flight people trying to get their capital out of places like china by buying investment properties and stuff in sydney or whatever and then sending their kids overseas like they're trying to essentially get out of china to the degree that they can and the fact that they can't that there's not just that option for them where they can just say i'm gonna leave and their their state is actually gonna hold them back and force them and like tax the shit out of them or like seize their seize their property or whatever to stop them um, that's the degree to which, uh, like, you don't even have the option of voting with your feet. <laughs> but why yeah, vote with yeah. your feet when you can vote with something much more powerful, as Nick Land will explain in the final <laughs> chapter? <laughs> yeah. Before we move on, actually, I just found a, he quotes Curtis Yarvin in explaining what universalism is. And I think it'd be good for me to read that out just so we can give people, in case we haven't given people a clear enough idea yet of, of what universalism is. This, this can clear things up and make this, this easier to understand for people. So, 
Universalism, in my opinion, is best described as a mystery cult of power. It's a cult of power because one critical stage in its replicative life cycle is a litter critter, little critter called the state. When we look at the big U's surface proteins, we notice that most of them can be explained by its need to capture, retain, and maintain the state, and direct its powers towards the creation of conditions that favour the continued replication of universalism. It's as hard to imagine universalism without the state as malaria without the mosquito. It's a mystery cult because it displaces theistic traditions by replacing metaphysical superstitions with philosophical mysteries, such as humanity, progress, equality, democracy, justice, environment, community, peace, etc. None of these concepts, as defined in orthodox universalist doctrine, is even slightly coherent. All can absorb arbitrary mental energy without producing any rational thought. They are best compared to Plotinian, Talmudic, or scholastic nonsense. So it is interesting. He, he in part two, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards zombie apocalypse, spends a lot more time talking about why he doesn't like democracy. And Levi had, has talked about this to a large extent already, but I think it's worth getting into the mechanism he proposes as to why there is a leftward ratchet under democracy and particularly liberal democracy. So part of it is, as Levi said earlier, that in democracy you get votes in large part by promising people stuff. And how do you promise people stuff? Well, you you buy stuff using tax dollars to to give to them, or you issue government debt and use that to buy people stuff. And so that leads to several things. That leads to higher taxes. So taking more money from the population and giving it to the state, and then the state as this this Hege- this Hegelian mystery god can distribute that as it sees fit, often according to universalist principles, issues debt, which is effectively taking money from future generations. And all of this also demands the, ex- they debase the, ex- the, currency. the expansion of state workers. So more more people who can enact these particular principles that are desired by universalists through the mechanism of the state and calls for more democracy because you you regularly hear calls for, oh, maybe 16-year-olds should vote, maybe 15-year-olds should vote, taken as a, a fundamentally good thing. There's not really an argument made as to why it's good to continue expanding franchise beyond, oh, well, it will give people a voice. In the opinion of land, and I imagine Curtis Yarvin, that's just a further attempt to spread universalist ideology by further expanding the number of claimants upon state resources and the number of people who will feel that they are owed some sort of share of resources by the state, some sort of redistribution by virtue of the fact that they have voted. And how convenient it would be if you expanded the vote to 16-year-olds that would just like, all right, now we've got another million people to vote for the state because they're captive for the next two years and we can brainwash them further. Sorry, I'm probably showing yeah. my hand here too much. <laughs> well, I, I the fact that 18 year olds are allowed to raising vote the fresh out of school. At all. <laughs> they raised 25 or something. I think that'd be pretty good. Because an 18 or 19 year old is still freshly brainwashed out of their fucking uh, school curriculum, state based school curriculum in the West. And and like taking that into the into their voting, but you know whatever it is, what it is. 
Mm, mm. Or maybe there should just be like some age-based function where you have like you have more votes the older you are or something. And it should and I think that function should always peak wherever my age is. <laughs> <laughs> I think 30-year-olds should have the most votes. <laughs> and then it should exponentially decay either side of 30. <laughs> no, it doesn't it it exponentially decays either side of wherever I am. Yeah. <laughs> Is there, okay, so just to push back on where we're going with our thinking mm. and where these guys are going, is is this actually true? Is this actually true that this is even like a pattern that's happening? That this, uh, expan- say, state expansion, uh, especially into the economy, like, is it true or is it just because we've been reading too much of, like, people who talk about these things? Say, like... Occasionally, you see like who's the uh, it- the Italian, the new Italian prime minister, the the lady, like she's been anti that. Maloney? She's like right, just kind of like centre right, isn't? Yeah, and and then Bolsonaro and Brazil and stuff like they're pushing back against that stuff. And then there's also uh, in El Salvador, um, the guy who like mm. got behind Bitcoin, he's pushing back in that way. Like, so maybe this isn't even true. Maybe this is like a US thing. I mean, at least Bolsonaro is expanding the state. Is he? I think in like a different way. Yeah, I think so. Anyways, I would say there's at the very least correlation temporally, if Mm. not causation, in that under democracies, the size of the state has been increasing and increasing really steadily. And I think it's in terms of correlation, there is a there's a mechanism that makes a lot of intuitive sense that it's a lot easier it's really hard, sorry, to take away stuff from people because as soon as you start, it, the state starts providing something to people, that almost that stops being something provided to them by the state very quickly. Instead, that just becomes normal. That becomes the baseline of what life means. It becomes an entitlement. Under the state, yeah. yeah. And then taking that away becomes really, really difficult because that's just something that they've come to expect. And I th- think that does serve a ratchet function well no it can even actually be interpreted as like an uh, an attack it can actually be interpreted like if we came in yeah. say like you yeah. and i ran for government not that we could ever fucking run for government after this podcast <laughs> it completely yeah. destroyed any political well, aspirations fine. we, we have too few listeners um, for it to matter it doesn't matter <laughs> um but um like one of the platforms that I'd be running on is just like completely, if not completely, like large defunding of like higher education, essentially. Uh, well, mm. that's I know you <laughs> have your own opinions, but like to me, like one of the one of one of the and the idea that somebody would come in and just be like, "All right, we're just going to stop funding higher education." Um, I can I can see I the headline. It's now. just like a completely politically untenable, like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I, I would come in with a fucking machete on that shit. Like, and it's not because I don't value education. I value education very highly. I just think that, like, the way that the state has hijacked it is very toxic and it would be much better to have that service provided in a much freer, open, more open market um, and for people to be able to, like, spend that money how they want on the education that they want. Mm. Well, I also think it's an, it's an engine of potential significant instability in that I think we're in a massive bubble yeah. of degrees at the moment. Like we're vastly oversupplied with people with 
not all types of degrees, but degrees in general. And the thing is, the way that our society operates yeah. is when you have tertiary education, you are told that you belong to the elite now, and people come to expect that that carries yeah. with it certain lifestyle benefits. Is a part of the elite, However, yeah. we're expanding the number of people with claims on elite status, but not giving them now what they've come to expect. And a large disaffected outer elite is extremely destabilizing. Anyway, it's, I feel like my, my problems with it are somewhat different to yours, but I also like your problems with it. Yeah, but here's the other thing. that It's also income claims. Like, people think that just getting a degree entitles you to a fucking job. It doesn't. I remember running into this guy after we finished our undergrad, <clears throat> and he studied physics. And, uh, mm. and he was complaining to me. It's like, well, I just fin- we just finished our biomedical degrees. And I had no illusion that I was going to get a job with a fucking undergraduate in biomedicine. I knew that I needed to do another, mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. degree, like medicine, whatever. Um, and... Uh, but he, he was like, oh, you know, like I just studied three years or four years studying physics and like nobody will give me a job. I was thinking like, yes, because like that's not how the economy works, mate. Like you've got to have skills. You've got to prove that like you've got like somebody in order to pay you to do something thinks that you're going to be producing something that is worth paying for. And just because you have a piece of paper that says that you're good at maths doesn't mean that you actually have like an economical marketable skill that employers are willing to pay for. But it was, it was more like this sense of like entitlement that having done the degree now, I should just like pop out of the womb of tertiary education and somebody will put a fucking like employment contract in my hand. And it's like, that's not how the world works, dude. Um, like go learn a skill that's actually like marketable. Um, if you're good at math, go learn to code, mate. Um, and so there's this like, there's this myth, there's this misconception that like having, sorry, what did you say? <laughs> Levi, old man shakes fist at Sky. <laughs> Don't worry. It's not even worth repeating. <laughs> it, 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 there's this myth amongst people, especially I think younger people who ha- haven't had it just explained to them that like degree does not equal skill. Degree does not equal employable, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you might pick up things, but chances are, like, if you do a three-year undergrad in, like, a technical field, the employers that you end up working with are going to be more interested in the internship that you did over summer than than the coursework that you did. And if you just sat around during the summer playing, like, video games instead of get, doing an internship or something, you're just going to have, like, a bunch of coursework. And all you've proven is that you can sit down and take exams. So, like, there's this big misconception in education that I think this has all been, like, messed up by the state's intervention in, our, in the education market. Mm, mm. Wow, far out. This is, you know what, this, this Nick Land Dark Enlightenment stuff has really, like, prompted a lot of political ranting from Levi's. <laughs> <laughs> well, by its very nature, it is, it is an extended metaphysical political rant. A 27,000-word metaphysical political rant. <laughs> it's it is interesting because if you think about it it's going to raise a lot of questions in your mind uh which which is one of the real really valuable aspects of this particular essay also like we're, we're not going to cover nearly all of the content in the essay so if any of this sounds interesting to you then then read it like i i would recommend it to people who are interested in this sort of thing even if they don't agree, like if people are interested in what the neo-reactionary movement is, this is probably the best 
single work explaining it that I've found. I've got a quote here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he starts talking about the reactive stuff compared to the leftist liberal stuff. Um, Quote, where the progressive enlightenment sees political ideals, the dark enlightenment sees appetites. It accepts that governments are made out of people and that they will eat well. Setting its expectations as low as reasonably possible, the Dark Enlightenment seeks only to spare civilization from frenzied, ruinous, gluttonous debauch. From Thomas Hobbes to Hans Hermann Hopper and beyond, the Dark Enlightenment asks, how can the sovereign power be prevented or at least dissuaded from devouring society? It consistently finds democratic, quote, solutions to this problem risible at best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's like kind of a nice, nice, he sort of, that, that was one of his moments of not being too bad. <laughs> yeah, and that distinction between Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Thomas Hobbes is important in this context because he says that universalism is fundamentally of the lineage of Rousseau in that it regards something being of the popular will as legitimate or something is legitimated if it is a representation of the popular will, which the state under democracy is within this paradigm. Whereas he says the Dark Enlightenment is more of a Hobbesian project in that it recognises that sovereignty and power can never be caged or divided. It's always going to, to reassert itself. So instead, what you have to think about is is basically how to implement incentives such that power will be wielded in a way that's beneficial. One thing I came across in my notes as well is another one of the mechanisms that he uses to explain the the leftward ratchet he observes as being inherent in democracy. So he contrasts libertarianism and post-liberalism and why increasingly in the post-liberal discourse libertarianism is seen as cruel and morally wrong. So he says that libertarianism seeks to shorten and sharpen feedback loops between an action and the the outcome of that action, whether it be rewarding or painful. And this this is seen as ethically bad by post-liberals because it undermines so-called social solidarity upon which democracy thrives, whereby people are shielded from the consequences of their actions by lengthening those feedback loops and also maybe making the feedback loop feedback to someone other than the person performing an action. So in a sense, it transforms individual dysfunctions into social pathologies. And so the libertarian approach to what he calls... So he calls this process zombification because... You're basically just encouraging people to continue incre- to continue increasing their time preference because if you're not going to see yep. the negative effects of your behavior, then you're just going to do really, really high time preference things like just eat really bad high sugar food or take drugs, do all sorts of things which will not benefit you in the future because... That, that negative feedback signal is being blurred because it's negatively feedbacking onto society as a whole. So the, the negative outcomes are distributed. And he says that that leads to zombie apocalypse where eventually 
society as a whole is increasingly weakened by that and also individual behavior because of these perverse incentives are weakened and you lead yeah. to an sort of an autophagic zombification so it the quote is you decide what you do but then vote on the consequences and so that is another one of his proposed mm. degeneration mechanisms of democracy a really good example of this is is like health and i i think to slightly add to what Nick Land is saying. This also reinforces I think he he would agree with this, even if he didn't say it this explicitly. That transfer of the feedback to somebody else to make somebody else pay for it. So it's like um private vices are paid for by society. Also mm. increases state power. And what I mean by that is how does that happen? Well, there has to be a mechanism. Like what is the mechanism by which one person can transfer the cost of their individual vice onto other people? Well, it has to be done through the state. There has to be some – it's the institution of taxation, public services, that so forth. A good example of this is like poor health. So like if you have really poor health, like lifestyle choices – like uh, smoking, uh, eating really unhealthy, high sugar food, um, that sort of stuff. There are going to be negative health consequences for most people. That, yes, there's a rare exception of like the 90-year-old who still smokes. Okay. But most people are going to have some serious emphysema and uh, potential lung cancer and stuff eventually if you're smoking chronically throughout mm-hmm. your life. Mm-hmm. The thing is, who pays the cost of that? Well, you as the individual decided to spend tens of thousands of dollars of your private income on tobacco, and then after 30 years of smoking or 40 years of smoking, then you get some extremely expensive um, treatment that is, say, like you need a lung transplant or something or some some other like treatment that's incredibly expensive. Under a public healthcare model, well... You've done an individual private behavior that you pay for for your, yourself. <clears throat> and then the consequences, you've got to pay, you've got to pay the consequence of it. The, the piper has come calling. <laughs> and instead of paying for it yourself by having your own health insurance or paying for it privately out of your own pocket, under a public health model, you transfer that cost onto everybody else. If you actually, like, if you, this is why I find the libertarian stuff compelling. If you actually just put it in very concrete terms, if I said, all right, Jack, I'm going to smoke for the next 40 years, and when I get lung cancer, I want you to pay for my, my, my treatment, well, Jack would very sensibly say, no, I'm not going to, that sounds like a bad deal. And if I said that to every individual, if I went around to all of my neighbors, to my entire community and said that, everybody would say, no, I'm not going to participate in that. But if we do it through the mechanism of state-based public health care, well, then all of a sudden it becomes a political issue. And all of a sudden it becomes in the positive rights schema. It's like, well, everybody has a right to good health care. And would you be so callous, Levi, as to take away somebody's right to health care? Well, you see, at that point, you've obfuscated the issue, which is personal mm. responsibility for your own health and bearing the consequences of your own p- poor actions. 
And mm. by putting it through the mechanism of the state and making it a, a public health issue, it's become completely politicised. And people use that to justify increasing public health care costs, increasing taxes, increasing violation of people's private property rights. And all the people who have good health, who had good health practices throughout their life and don't cause that sort of cost on the system, uh, end up paying and subsidising other people's poor choices. Which to me is like mm-hmm. just grossly unfair. And uh, that's like an example of this, this one of these. And, you know, you can look at this in education. You can look at this as so many things across the board where the transfer of the consequences of private poor decisions and high time preference behavior gets socialized, politicized and put through the mechanism of the state. And in order to fund that subsidization, they have to increase taxes and so forth. And that's what I think Nick Land's talking about. So you also, you alluded to within that another one of the, the reinforcement mechanisms or the, the zombie apocalypse reinforcement mechanisms of democracy that Nick Land brings up in that he says, if you, if you keep socialising at least some of the costs of these, of these behaviours, so in the case of a smoker, like, they will bear some of the cost in that they get lung cancer. That's not something that you can impose on the rest of society, but you can impose financial costs and opportunity costs in that they'll be using a hospital bed that someone else could be using. So if you're, if you're socialising at least some of the consequences, those problems are going to get worse. And then how do you deal with those problems once you've established a paradigm where reducing state power means you're taking away stuff from people and you're cold and heartless? So. The way yeah, you that's it why it's a expanding, ratchet. It's a one-way function. Yeah, by expanding state power to address problems that, in part, were caused by state intervention, and that's another one of the ratchets that Nick Land says is inherent to democracy. So Levi comes along, politician MP Levi comes along, you know, head of Crypto Nukes Australia, and says, "I want to get rid of all of this like public healthcare funding for people who smoked their whole lives." You know, I'd be, I'd probably be viewed as just like. A callous monster, like how dare you? Like it's such mm-hmm. a heartless thing to say. Um, but that's just a particularly acute example because, obviously, like in the case of smoking, everybody knows it's bad for you at this point in history. And also, like it's very clearly like nobody forced you to put the fucking cigarette in your mouth. Like you did that yourself. Um, but I think that's just like a kind of archetype, like a very potent example of like this broader. Ex- broader pattern that Nick Land is pointing out of like socializing high time preference behavior and then not being able to remove mm-hmm. that socialized subsidies because it's it's uh, it's against the universalist ethic once the thing is already in place once the positive right is already in place it's very difficult to remove it how about <laughs> i just got to the point in my notes on race <laughs> that we talk about his extended discussion on race, which seems to be the bit of this essay that, that has got Nick Land in the most trouble. When I say in the most trouble, which okay. has led the most people on Reddit to dismiss him as a fascist. So, <laughs> no, hasn't gotten into him into trouble at all, really, but it's one of the more discussed parts of this. And it mostly starts with him talking about Richard Dawkins, or talking about Curtis Yarvin talking about Richard Dawkins. So... He's using this as an example to illustrate the religious nature of universalism. And he uses the figure of Richard Dawkins to do so, because Richard Dawkins is 
It depends on the age of our listeners. If our listeners were born before the year 2000, they probably do remember how obnoxious Richard Dawkins and the other new atheists were, just writing brave books called Why God is Not Great, etc., etc., to be, to be read exclusively by other athe- atheists so they can pat themselves on the back for being so brave about reading a book which just completely confirms all of their pre-existing beliefs. Oh, fuck you, yeah, I'm so open-minded. <laughs> read a book about why I don't believe in God because I don't believe in God. So he compares that, that apparent rejection of real, religiosity with Richard Dawkins' sincere piety within a universalist framework. So... Richard Dawkins was talking about, it uh, wasn't Aldous Huxley. I think it was Huxley, one of Aldous Huxley's, Thomas Huxley. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Huck, talking about Thomas yeah, Huxley, Huxley was like a, who, was, um, who was a defender of Charles Darwin. Colleague, colleague of Darwin. And uh, someone who Richard Dawkins as an evolutionary biologist really likes. So Richard Dawkins was talking about, he, I think he quoted Thomas Huxley saying something rude about non-white mm. people. And- he said he was quoting him to illustrate how the zeitgeist has moved on. Bearing in mind, the guy was writing in like the 17th century. Yeah. And it's like, this, it's not to excuse him, but this is like that, like, yeah, it's like no shit. Someone in like 18th century England was racist. And he was using this as an example of, <laughs> or Dawkins was bringing this up to talk about how the zeitgeist has moved on. How now, how in the past... People in Europe were weren't as morally good because they were racist, but the zeitgeist was such that they didn't recognize it. But now the zeitgeist has moved on, and well-educated, intelligent people don't don't engage in racism. And Curtis Yarvin picked up on this, and I'll read a quote that Land quotes of Yarvin's. It might seem strange to pick on tangential figures such as Dawkins, but Moldbug selects his target for exquisitely judged strategic reasons. Moldbug identifies with Dawkins' Darwinism, with his intellectual repudiation of Abrahamic theism, and with his broad commitment to scientific rationality. Yet he recognises, crucially, that Dawkins' critical faculties shut off, abruptly and often comically, at the point where they might endanger a still broader commitment to hegemonic progressivism. In this way... Dawkins is powerfully indicative. Militant secularism is itself a modernised variant of the Abrahamic metameme on its Anglo-Protestant radical democratic taxonomic branch, whose specific tradition is anti-traditionalism. And I'll, I'll go on with another quote. To sustain this transcendent, this transcendent moral posture in relation to racism is no more rational than subscription to the doctrine of original sin, of which it is, in any case, the unmistakable modern substitute. The difference, of course, is that original sin is a traditional doctrine, subscribed to by an embattled social cohort, significantly underrepresented among public intellectuals and media figures, deeply unfashionable in the dominant world culture, and widely criticised, if not derided, without any immediate assumption that the critic is advocating murder, theft, or adultery. To question the status of racism as the supreme and defining social sin, on the other hand, is to court universal condemnation from social elites, and to arouse suspicions of thought crimes that range from pro-slavery apologetics to genocide fantasies. Racism is pure or absolute evil, whose proper sphere is the infinite and the eternal, 
or the incendiary sinful depths of the hyper-Protestant soul, rather than the mundane confines of civil interaction, social scientific realism, or efficient and proportional legality. The dissymmetry of affect, sanction, and raw social power attending old heresies and their replacements, once noticed, is a nagging indicator. A new sect reigns, and is not even especially well hidden. So that was, that was a, a big dump of quotes on my part. But that sums up a lot of this. There, there's the middle third of this essay, which has some parts that are really interesting. Particularly, I found the examination of racism as the new sort of essential sin within, within post-liberalism or within universalist ideology. However, a lot of the stuff in this section, which I imagine we'll gloss over, is him kind of offering borderline social media commentary on various like racial controversies of the time at which he was writing, which I just found really dull. I quoted those two bits because I feel, I feel like that's the central thrust of what he's talking about, of the interesting bit of this. Yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. I think that the main thing to say about that section is we could leave. Hmm. I didn't like his treatment of Dawkins, not necessarily because anything that he said was particularly, I guess it just felt like a little bit, like you're honing in on the use of the word zeitgeist. He basically just like, Dawkins just used the words zeitgeist like in a very generic sense. And then... Um, mm. Nick Land interpreted it through the Hegelian sense of Hosaikai. He's like, it's Hegelian. It's Hegelian. It's like he could, like I, I'd be willing to bet, like that if you went to Dawkins and asked him, do you think, do you think, in any way Hegelian about like the sense of historical progress that there's this thing? What did you mean by the word zeitgeist? He's just like, no, what the fuck? <laughs> He's like, that's not at all what he meant. And I've just found that like him honing in on the use of that one word and just making this huge tirade about like uh, zeitgeist, like Hegelian historical progress. And also I just was like, get mm. off it, mate. Like it's just clear misinterpretation. This is where over-education and- in philosophy might have been working against Nick Land in that he will he will see yeah. patterns that most people like to most people I imagine yeah, like you said to Dawkins using the word zeitgeist probably wasn't actually a reference to Hegel. I do, however No. No. I don't dislike his treatment of Dawkins. I think in many ways it's really interesting and actually quite accurate. So yeah, Zeitgeist stuff, that's just kind of with Nick Land. With Nick Land, we need to accept that he's he just like he can't help himself. He's gonna go on an amphetamine fueled rabbit hole over like specific words used <laughs> that might be very meaningful to him, but most people will not be using these words with as much philosophical background as Nick Land. However, the general point that Richard Dawkins holds himself up as being this person guided only by science and rationality, and then to steel man Nick Land and like basing his work on that of Curtis Yarvin, when it comes to things like talking about the Abrahamic religions, Richard Dawkins is very happy to apply very, very strict rationalist criteria to them. However, when you get to, as soon as you get to discussing racism, then 
Yavin says his critical faculties shut off. So he stops saying, okay, why is racism bad, for example? That's an unexamined principle of his. And Yavin says that is indicative. That, that's because he is part of universalist religion. So while he, he rejects yeah. the, and I think that's, that's interesting. the Christian religion, he subscribes to the universalist religion. And in that regard, I found that point interesting. I agree about the zeitgeist stuff. Like, I think it's just overdetermining based on a word he used. But the broader point, yeah. contrasting his approach to Abrahamic religion and to universalist religion, I thought that was quite interesting. So I have, this, I have a note here to myself that uh, maybe we can talk about before we move on to part four, which is uh, I wrote section on hate is very interesting. Uh, I asked, what does, quote, hate add to a crime? Does it make the crime substantively worse or qualitatively oh, different? If so, why? Uh, hate crimes have, do, 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 quote, hate crimes have a place in an open society? After all, hate is an internal experience, an emotion, presumably in response to uh, some underlying ideas, whether or not they're mistaken. Um, however, in an open society like ours, in principle, we're not supposed to have thought crimes, idea crimes. So why should a, a crime, given that, like, say somebody attacks me because I'm Aboriginal, why does their attack, why does their motivation of uh, racism augment the crime, make it any worse than if they just attacked me because they wanted to take my wallet or something? And it's this... Uh, Hate crime mm. has become such hate speech and hate crime have become such hot topics in the last, well, probably for a while. And mm -hmm. understandably, it's got its roots in like a lot of the very serious things like lynching and all that sort of thing um, that happened across like America and Australia and apartheid in like South Africa and Queensland and stuff. So I've got a quote here. Those, those what I just read was my own thoughts to myself. But I've got a quote here from Nick Lant. <clears throat> Firstly, the crime is augmented by a purely ideational, ideologically, or even spiritual element, attesting not only to a violation of civilized conduct, but also to a heretical intention. This facilitates the complete abstraction of hate from criminality, whereupon it takes the form of, quote, hate speech, or simply, quote, hate, which is always to be contrasted with passion, outrage, or righteous anger represented by critical, controversial, mm. or merely abusive language directed against unprotected groups, social categories, or individuals. Hate is an offence against the cathedral itself, a refusal of its spiritual guidance, and a mental act of defiance against the manifest religious destiny of the world. Sorry, this is a little bit of a long one, but I think it's all, it's all good. Um, secondly, and relatedly, hate is deliberately and even strategically asymmetrical in respect to the equilibrium political polarity of advanced democratic societies. Between the relentless march of progress and the ineffective grouching of conservatism, it does not vacillate. As we have seen, only the right can quote hate. As the doxological immunity system of hate suppression is consolidated within the elite educational and media systems, the highly selective distribution of protections ensures that, quote, discourse, especially empowered discourse, is ratcheted consistently to the left, which is to say, in the direction of an ever more comprehensively radicalized universalism. The morbidity of this trend is extreme. Because grievance status is awarded as political compensation for economic incompetence, it constructs an automatic cultural mechanism that advocates for dysfunction, uh, 
the universalist creed with its reflex identification with inequality of inequality with injustice can conceive no alternative to the proposition that the lower one's situational status, the more compelling is one's claim upon society, the purer and nobler one's cause. Temporal failure is the sign of spiritual election, and to dispute any of this is clearly, quote, hate. Well, that was a really interesting section. Mm. His discussion of hate is really interesting. And so so the whole point about, okay, in an open society, should your internal state define the severity of a crime? I mean, there are certain... Let me know if you think this is a reasonable example, because I can think of some examples as to where I think yes. So, for example, premeditated murder, I think, should be should carry a harsher sentence than accidentally killing someone or doing so. I, I do think I feel like there is something worse to planning to murder someone as opposed to getting into a fight, like reactively killing someone. And that, that is an internal state. You're, you're planning out how you're going to do it, and you're, this is why I'm going to kill this person. So that, like that, that's one way in which it could be, I think it's valid. It is interesting too, within that quote you read out, there is another one of the mechanisms by which he identifies democracy and specifically post-liberal democracy as having this inexorable ratchet towards the left in that it awards some form of social prestige to those who do economically poorly which in some and then the negative feedback loop for poor decisions feedbacks feeds back on the state rather than the individual so there there's a promotion of behaviors which in nick land's telling would would be economically disadvantageous were it not for the state and then this demands that the yeah. state be made larger to further protect people who are getting who are developing even less advantageous behaviors so i think that's another one of his proposed mechanisms for democratic decline which is interesting so, yeah, so i like i don't have a clear answer to this because instinctively like say no. okay here's a here's an example say <laughs> say say somebody throws a brick through a shop window for no other reason than they're just being a, a hooligan versus, you know, I don't know, they're drunk and they're just th- throwing, just be destructive, versus uh, a neo-Nazi throws a brick through uh, the storefront of uh, a Jewish business. To me, that seems somehow substantively worse, the second the second kind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and likewise, but I can't necessarily like pinpoint the the rational justification for it, other than to say that it's that the the anti-Semitism of it, or like the racism of it, or whatever, somehow augments the crime. But I, that's more like that's like a it's more like an, an intuition or like a an emotional mm-hmm. response rather than like me being able to clearly explain why it's why it's somehow worse or why it somehow should make the punishment more severe or or why that um uh, why it is the case that even considering doing it 
is somehow immoral because like based on whatever like anti-semitic mm-hmm. or racist grounds um do you see what i'm saying like i can't it's not it's not clear to me yet that's my inexplicit intuition i agree completely and this is this is one of the more interesting parts and for me personally uncomfortable parts of this essay because when he talks about well the way he talks about racism so i also think racism is bad and when I examine, okay, why is it bad? If you just keep asking why, eventually I just get to a point where I'm like, well, it just is. I just, I just don't like, I just yeah. don't like it. And so in that sense too, I recognize in myself a lot of universalist belief as, as defined by Nick Land and Curtis Yarvin. And when I say it's uncomfortable, I think it's actually very valuable as well. To have someone hold up a mirror and go, okay, these are the things you believe, and I want you to justify now why you believe these things. Like, give me a justification besides, oh, well, I just don't like it. Because I can, I can propose social justifications as to like, oh, well, we live, at least in Australia, okay, we live in a multi-ethnic society, and you're going to have massive social unrest if suddenly you start tolerating or even more so just like promoting racial suspicion that that'll have that'll have significant downsides in terms of social stability i mean then like it depends how far you want to take it you're going to go oh well, why is that a problem that's one of the that's one of the mo- more valuable parts of this essay for me to read that and be forced to think about that yeah i suppose one way of addressing it now that i'm trying to think it through is that have to ask like and i think he talks about this further on so like i guess we can move on because the hate conversation kind of bridges into part four which is it talks a lot about race Mm. um but really like there's a there's a couple of words that the classical liberals as far as i'm aware and it really comes out of the uk in particular the history of the and you might know a little bit more about this than I do, um, but okay. So in Europe and the UK, continental Europe and the UK and Russia, over the last few hundred years, there were very very significant social changes uh, that corresponded roughly to like increasing uh, freedom and economic liberation um, and suffrage amongst, say, like, the working class, peasants, you know, there there was the emancipation of the serfs. Um, And in in England, there was, in particular, things like um, the development and institutionalisation of common law and the Magna Carta and basically constraints on the power of the king and the the institution of, like, the parliamentary system. that's very, very long and complex history, and I, I'm not fully like up to date on all of it. But suffice to say <laughs> we, that there was we some are terms scholars aside- of English history, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is me trying to piecemeal together some like little, just some tats of the stuff that I've tried to understand. Um, like, suffice to say, there are a few words that started being used that have very different meanings same word and kind of 
parallel meanings, but substantively different. And I'm going to highlight three or four of them. Equality, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. justice, individualism. In particular, um, there's a difference between the way that, like, as we've described, the left use it. In particular, like Marx being the the you know the most explicit, but like all the various forms of the left versus how the classical liberals and eventually the libertarians use those words. So I'll highlight in particular the idea of equality because that's relevant here. Equality. Oh no, maybe as a quick aside, justice. Justice would be an interesting one because the idea of justice in the modern left now is very different to what the liberals were talking about in the UK. Justice to them, and according to the American founding fathers, meant, uh, like, uh, sorry, I should use justice. Equality, sorry, um, means like equality before the law. So in principle, not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily work out this way in practice, but in principle, two people from different parts of society when they go in front of a judge, should be treated impartially and the judge shouldn't take into consideration what family they come from, what their wealth is or anything. They should be treated impartially. And that's a very different type of judge and they should be judged based on the merits of their case and their character as individuals, not based on, say, their social backgrounds. Now, to the degree that... Existing institutions actually fulfil that principle is a different issue. Like, obviously, it's not always perfect. We live in an, in an imperfect world. But at least, like, you know, like the Australian um, law system, the American law, that's kind of the principle that they're aiming for, and they try their best to do it. Um, that's a very different idea of equality compared to, say, the equality that somebody like John Rawls talks about. John Rawls... His idea of equality or like social justice equality, those sorts of things are like, you know, equality of opportunity, so access to education, all that sort of things, or equality of uh, outcome, so equal incomes or equal wealth distribution or equality of like John Rawls would say like the... um, the just society is the society in which you would have no preference as to which member you were born as. Um, so mm-hmm. these are very like closely, you can see how you could kind of play a sleight of hand with these words. And yeah, basically the classical liberals are saying, we don't mind economic equality in inequality, like economic inequality is fine. And to, you know, maybe within some constraints, um, but like economic inequality is a natural consequence of freedom because different people make different choices and those different choices will have different outcomes. And as long as people are allowed to own the rewards or the consequences of their actions, that will result in inequality of economic inequality, but that's fine. As long as there's equality before the law so that the state and the judges and the judiciary are not making arbitrary um, decisions based on uh, facts that aren't relevant to the cases at hand and that they protect people's property rights and so forth. <clears throat> that leads to a very different like sort of social structure compared to like the other interpretations of the words equality and justice. Mm. And it's, it's probably worth adding to that that with Marx and Engels, they actually did, there are some writings of theirs where they do say that trying to completely eliminate economic inequality is just not going to work. Like you just can't do that and that shouldn't be your ultimate goal. 
That said, in a body of work as broad as that of Marx and Engels, you, like, you'll, you'll probably be able to find them saying something different. Shout out to Moog. <laughs> I don't think we've given Moog a shout out yet. So, <laughs> yeah, shout out to Moog. Um, yeah, so with that said, that big tire out of the way, then we've got to ask the question, okay, what about is there some sort of fundamental sense of equality? And what's, what about mm. equality versus differences? Like Jack and I are not equal. Mm-hmm. We've got different, like there's, we're not equal in the sense of identity, like a mathematical identity. There's, you can't form a one-to-one correspondence between the elements of my body and the elements of Jack's body. Like we have different skin pigments, <laughs> different heights, all these sorts mm. of different things. Now, when it comes to physical attributes, it's very, very easy to see that like if a dude is like six foot six and athletic, he's going to be much more suited to play like football or basketball versus like a dude who's five foot five and chubby, right? Mm-hmm. And people, I think, don't necessarily complain that much about like, those, like okay, well, those physical attributes are very obvious. But then when it comes to intellectual cognitive attributes, then that opens up this whole discussion. And in particular, there was a book called The Bell Curve that opened up this whole discussion about like when uh, IQ tests were conducted, it compared uh, when the person controlled for the racial identification of the participants, he found different bell curve distributions. And that's created like a whole controversy of like talking about the cognitive dissimilarities between different ethnic groups, in, in particular in the United States, but I'd say like, it, it, like it's caused controversy all over the world. In particular, because it's saying, mm. "Hey, maybe different racial groups aren't equal," and it's a very interesting conversation. And I have my own opinions on it, but that's basically like a huge chunk of the next part of the essay is, is Nick Nick Land exploring that that stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that like, do you want to talk about his view of innate hierarchy now or later? Because that that does bring up one of his big points that really sets him against the so the the liberal democratic tradition in that. Uh, not against the liberal democratic tradition, against the more left-wing parts of it, where he just he flat out says equality doesn't exist. This is in the part of this essay that I found a lot less less interesting. It's not to say so. This is chapter four, a something called something like a digression into racial terror. It's not to say that there's nothing in this section which isn't interesting or worthwhile. I think, as you, Levi, said earlier, there are gems scattered through this of things of ideas that are really interesting. But a lot of it is also him talking about kind of media controversies over race, which it's it's just a bit more boring listening to what various journalists and pundits say, and then what they say about each other, particularly on the concept of race. It's just it's just tiresome and it's not actually something I find all that interesting and I feel like it took away from the interesting points he was making rather than added to it. I think that he should have cut this section by about a half at least. At at least, yeah. And the the analysis of like news stories and then what people on blogs were saying is just not interesting. Like you can include one example maybe or just say in the media, this is being discussed. It was just it was just not a good framing device and one that made this much less fun and much less interesting. I think one interesting conversation to have, 
I've got two interesting things mm. that can mm. come out of this this these sections. One, it is actually like once I read the final the final section, the final form of exit. Once you get to the final bit, and <laughs> then I contextualizes realize it, it works. But he should have contextualized it first. Always, oh, he buried that motherfucking lead. It's so deep. It was so deep up in that yeah. ass, yeah, that literary yeah, yeah, ass. Yeah. The fucking <laughs> the foreign objects unit was was fucking elbow deep in the ass <laughs> of this one. <laughs> so I don't want to. We're still edging you, dear listener. We're still going to edge you with like, what's the big reveal? What's the big reveal? Well, let's just say I'll talk. Let's talk a little bit about race. Okay, and bear in mind. Um, Jack is not a pure Aryan angel from the northern Hyperborea, but he's pretty white. <laughs> I have I have brown eyes. And brown he's got hair, brown, which brown is, eyes, which is an ontological <laughs> failing. I acknowledge. <laughs> and and I'm I'm quite not white. <laughs> I'm European and Indigenous quite Australian. Um, quite not white, but I I have the blessing slash curse it's a blessing and a curse of being like quite racially ambiguous so like, i go different places people get me mixed up for all sorts of things which is kind of fun i'm like keel key from key and peel you know uh key always gets to play he gets to play the arabs and the black people and whatever you know if i was a comedian on the i get to play, <laughs> gets to play anything no one knows where it's from <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so um so I find these these conversations on race when there's this stuff blowing up about um, uh, like IQ and uh, and race. I was like, yeah, but what race should I put? Like, if I was to do an IQ test, I've not done an IQ test before. Um, but if I were to do an IQ test, like, why should I? Why should I put in uh, Indigenous or European? Why can't I put both? Why do I have like because mm. I am both and uh, so it doesn't fit. Do I get well, to go I get a, which bell curve a, a, do I get to put, put obsessed it? with haplotypes and talk about them at length whenever I meet anyone? <laughs> it's all about your haplogroup, bro. And so, so what, <laughs> um, what, what just, are the interesting... There is, there is no uh, greater marker of intense internet autism than knowing too much about haplogroups. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> You you just not able to be a well adjusted person and to know that much about haplogroups. Yeah, I've only funny. ever met one person in real life who started talking about haplogroups. I think they're mostly on the internet. under what 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 was the context? It wasn't it wasn't in terms of like embryology or something. Presumably, like outside of medical. No, no, school. no. Haplogroups <laughs> in the internet sense of haplogroups. <laughs> That's so funny. They're just like the um, dog whistling. <laughs> they're uh, the the. Oh, it's not even dog whistling. H N or something. <laughs> um, In the context, okay, I'll, I'll put the the um, the the inequality thing to the side for a moment and remind me to get back to it. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, you're bringing up. The bell curve reminded me of a point in this this piece, which again is I took as evidence against Nick Land being or this this whole thing just being a racist screed, which is what I've heard it described as online, which 
in some ways actually vindicates some of the points Land is making, where if you even point yeah. out that this kind of is ironic, a heresy actually. within the context of universalism, then you get you get just decried as a heretic in universalist language, like a racist. The the response by some people to this article vindicates Land's point. Because Land then goes on to say basically like the, the people who obsess over race and IQ miss the point that that talking about generalities and he he phrases it in like continental philosophical terms, but like generalities are less perfect than specifics. Which is to say like if you talk to someone from a race which in the bell curve has like a lower mean IQ than some other race, well, you're still talking like you're not talking to a race, you're talking to a person. And so ultimately their intelligence is going to be individual. And so even if just for argument's sake, there's this link between race and IQ, well, you when you deal with an individual, you like the meaningful information is how smart is that individual, not how smart is this like semi-abstract body that they're a representative of. And Land makes that point, which I thought was very sensible. But the fundamental problem with all of this, Jack, is that IQ is not correlated with your race. It's correlated with how much brain your ancestors have eaten. This is what he missed out on. Like, were your ancestors cannibals <laughs> that consumed the intelligence? Oscar Kismayer. <laughs> Oscar Kismayer comes to the man who solved human evolution. <laughs> How much a creative human intelligence has been consumed and passed down? IQ, IQ is an integrative function of how many brains have been eaten in your genetic line. <laughs> if people don't know what we're talking about, listen to our episode on The Beginning Was The End by Oscar Kismayer. I don't remember which, which number Jack's it was. Jack's favourite book. One. Jack's favourite book It is still, I think, the worst podcast. thing I've ever read for this podcast. <laughs> it's absolutely atrocious book. <laughs> of just the most aggressive pseudoscience. Uh, Jack, just, that was just one of the most satisfying books to have ever gotten you to read. <laughs> <laughs> it was just pure torture. And then with the with the IQ and race thing, there's also just fundamentally, I don't think IQ is actually a particularly good measure of intelligence. It measures some dimensions of intelligence, but intelligence is a lot more high dimensional than the one-dimensional line that IQ is. Yeah, and so one, one of the problems with... Look, the, I have many critiques of IQ as an idea. <laughs> many problems a, with this. Yeah, I have so many problems with it. But what... <clears throat> uh, yeah, I can't I can't help myself. Just go and read about, like... I'm just going to leave a little hint here. There's a very close philosophical relationship between IQ and the way that CPI is argued to measure inflation. <laughs> I, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see it. It's called. I, I was going through, okay, what are the different ways that Levi's going to disagree with this? I didn't expect you to link it to Bitcoin. And inflation. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> okay, so there's this idea, and it's called. It's called, it's a theory of measurement. And it's like, where do measurements come from? This is the philosophical question. And what is, what does it mean to have a meaningful measurement of something? And 
one theory, or one explanation of the way that this works, which is roughly what Levi subscribes to, in my, my understanding of the way the world works, is like if a system has a particular parameter, uh, like uh, there's a particular physical part of the system that can be set into correspondence with a number, then we can measure it. <clears throat> but there's another, mm. there's another interpretation of measurement, which is, uh, and the way that we do that measurement is we then go and get another physical system and we put that into correspondence and we get this like chain of correspondences. Um, <clears throat> like, for example, like, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, any number of measurement devices that you use in engineering and, and biological, like medical sciences and stuff. Um, and then there's this other school of thinking, which is almost like the reverse. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost the exact inverse, which is to say, we're going to presume that such and such thing exists. And then we're going to propose some way of measuring it. And then no matter mm. what the outcome of that measurement um, uh, tool is, the measurement tool is, that will indicate the underlying value of the thing that we're measuring on the assumption that we know that that thing exists and we know that there's a function mapping the parameter to the score on the measurement tool. Okay, that's a little bit abstract. Let me be really precise uh, with an example. Say you want to measure happiness in a, in a population or an individual. You send out like a bunch, of, you, you come up with like some survey, you send out the survey to everybody and then <clears throat> you say, do some statistics on, on like the outcomes of the survey, then you put it on a bell curve, say, and say like, if you got this score in the survey, then you're say in the top, I don't know, uh, quartile of the distribution of like happiness. But nobody ever actually wondered like, well, does happiness actually correspond to anything meaningful in this survey? It's kind of taken as a mm -hmm, as a mm -hmm. as an inherent. It's like the people who design the survey are just saying, "Oh yeah, well, the more and more happiness in an individual correspond to a higher score in the, in the survey." This is a problem throughout the social sciences. And it's called it's called I think it's called the measurement problem or something like that. And it is a plague in the social sciences, and it's especially a plague in economics because Keynesian economics is just full of this crap. In particular, with CPI. In particular, with CPI, CPI assumes there is this thing called aggregate demand, which causes inflation, and that by going out and taking out a basket of goods, doing some statistical analysis of it, then that tells you the measure of aggregate demand, never actually having said whether or not aggregate demand even exists as an entity. Correspondingly to IQ, the people who have designed this, this test have never actually clearly explained what is the underlying physical phenomena that they're calling general intelligence, which if it's general, then it must be universal, which means it has infinite expressions. Why does that collapse to a single test? And why is that expressed on a bell curve? Mm -hmm. And how come they don't include anything like uh, uh, all the other range of human intelligences? It's always this very, very slim uh, set of like, puzzle-solving type of abstract reasoning. Can you rotate shapes in your mind? Can you rotate shapes in your mind and so forth, right? And somehow uh, general intelligence is supposed... Like, it doesn't take into consideration like aesthetic intelligence, spatial intelligence, like the ability to, like, I don't know, like deal with 3D... Like I've got a friend who's a carpenter. Very fucking good at like 
the guy says he can like basically like imagine entire complex shapes and rotate them in his head and like change them in his head. I'm like, how the fuck do you do that? It's crazy. Okay, where's the test that helps? Like on your IQ test, does that get measured? And so there's this entire philosophical mm-hmm. problem where they've got it the wrong way around. In the physical sciences and engineering, you say there's some parameter. And we can empirically, t- if you're saying that this parameter results in some measurement and then we go and perform the measurement and we find out actually we can't measure it, then the, uh, <clears throat> in the, in the like, fundamental sciences, you actually say that that thing doesn't exist. Like when it comes to like mm. measuring the speed of light <laughs> and, and, uh, and like trying to measure the, the ether, or like the people like back in the day, like trying to like figure out like the speed of light through the ether. They ended up coming to the conclusion that oh, like the ether doesn't exist, <laughs> and the speed of light is a constant. The ether doesn't exist, and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> like they thought the ether existed, and they and it doesn't exist. So there's this entire like radically philosophically like if like incongruent issue with IQ tests, and in particular, they're making a claim about. Mm-hmm. General intelligence. Now, general intelligence, if you're saying it's general, it means that it can deal with problems that haven't been seen before by anybody, which means by definition it can't be in the test. But we still have general intelligence. We should be able to figure out how to deal with that problem. So having said all of that, even if I say, okay, put that aside, put my disagreements with that aside, and let's just think about there is an IQ test and it measures something, say, the ability to rotate shapes in your head or do some sort of abstract reasoning or like deal with some sort of like simple arithmetic or something like that. And you give it to different populations and then you say like subdivide up all the participants into like their racial identification. And you find out that there is a difference in say African-Americans versus white Americans versus Hispanic Americans versus Asian Americans. So even though those are very low resolution groups, like what about Japanese versus Vietnamese Americans? <laughs> okay. It's very high resolution. Asian, Asian American. Okay, even if you say that there are these different bell curves uh, between these different groups, the question is then, what is causing that change? Because it's not, it's not just, like, enough to say that there is a difference. You actually have to, like, come up with some theory about why is there this difference. Now, this doesn't apply to Nick Land, but 100%, there's plenty of people who take those out, those, uh, those, those, uh, those differences in the bell curve as some sort of indication. At this point, we ran into a few technical difficulties and restarted recording. Sorry, this is a very long rant. I just, I just, uh, this, this, this fucking Nick Land guy is just like, just got Levi popping off with the rants all over the place. Okay, so let's just say, hypothetically, that the IQ test is somehow meaningful. Okay. And then that there is some, like, aggregate, like statistical differences, say like there's a different um, variance and different mean <clears throat> between people identify as different racial groups, like uh, Hyperboreans versus Ruritanians. This is Lemurians. <laughs> the difference between the Hyperboreans versus Lemurians. And Lemurians. <laughs> <laughs> say there's a different say hyperboreans on average uh <laughs> like the the mean is shifted of hyperboreans is shifted one standard deviation to the right of the mean of lemurians <laughs> <laughs> we will clip this bit out and send it to all so that on average future employers 
Jack and Levi discuss <laughs> the so IQ differences between the Hyperborean and Lemurian races. <laughs> After talking about hate crimes. <laughs> So that on so that so that if so that the you know like the a random person on average who's taken from the bottom third or whatever of like the Hyperboreans are going to be higher on the IQ test than somebody who's a, a mean around the mean of the Lemurians or whatever the fuck like you know you just got to look at the bell curves <laughs> line them up right you know how to do you know how to do the fucking stuff like this isn't a statistics lesson bitches <laughs> um, let's say that is the case. You have to ask, assuming that Lemurians and Hyperboreans are people, which I'm going to assume that mm. they are, you have to ask, what is, what is causing that difference in, 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 uh, mm. in distributions? And there's people who take it almost um, a priori as some indication of, like, I mean, obviously people like Varg, Vikinas. It's just going to say, well, that's because yeah, like yeah. Europeans, sorry, not Europeans, Hyperboreans. <laughs> Hyperboreans are just better than Lemurians, right? <laughs> you know, which, you know, without an out racist people, Wait, Northern like Hyperboreans, Vikinas, you just like, well, okay. Northern, Northern Hyperboreans of all the Hyperboreans, not these Slavic Hyperboreans. <laughs> 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 so, like, obviously the Norwegian Hyperboreans, their bell curve is shifted to the right comp- compared to the Middle European and Slavic Hyperboreans, which is still shifted to the right mm. of the African Lemurians. So, <laughs> mm. so, the question is, given that there is a difference, what is what is the underlying phenomena causing that difference? And the issue that, and this is a much longer discussion than we're probably going to have time to, and also I need to write about it more so I can actually explain it properly because I tried writing about it mm. recently and it was so hard to write about that. Uh, I, I, I've bookmarked, I've put it aside as a draft. I might publish it at some point. All of your writings about race and IQ. There's this issue of universality. So universality is like this uh, idea from computer science and is now entering into epistemology. And at some point in my expectation, because it's such a powerful idea, it will rip into psychology. And then when it rips into psychology, it'll rip into all of these things and it'll cut. You know, like what happened? I really love the way that Daniel Dennett put this. He said that Darwinism is like acid. Chew, it, it is such a powerful idea. It's chewed through all these other philosophical ideas and it's cut through in, and it's like in the course of a couple of hundred years becomes something that billions of people at least have some understanding of, you know, as error, as much error as there is in people's understanding of it. Um, I think universality is on the same trajectory. Alan Turing discovered universality, computational universality, and it's only now with people like David Deutsch who are trying to explore what are the consequences of universality when applied to the human mind. And it's Mm -hmm. basically Mm -hmm. the idea that any two universal computers have the ability to simulate each other's function. And because of that, they're all equivalent. There's no, like you can't say that my computer can do something that your computer can't do. Inference. They might be running different software. You're, say, running a Microsoft Windows computer. I'm running an Apple software. But if they're both universal computers, then it's just a matter of the fact that I put 
Apple computer, Apple software onto my computer and you put Windows software onto your computer, but the underlying hardware is still running a universal algorithm. And it's easy to see that if you just uh, try to think through like the contrapositive of that, if you just say like, or like, or like if we negated it, you say like, well, is there such a thing as a universal computer that can't simulate the function of another universal computer? Or no, if the other computer is universal, it's running something and the computer A that you're talking about in the first place can't simulate it, then computer A is just not universal, right? Mm. <laughs> and there's all these consequences of universality that come out. And the issue is here is that although we're very different, all of us individually, we're all universal. We've got this universality to us. And the reason why I can make that claim is because either people are running some sort of universal algorithm or they're not. It's a binary. And there's very, very specific, there's very specific consequences of, if you think through the consequences of like, yes, either humans are universal in some capacity, universal problem solvers, as Deutsch would say, or they're not universal problem solvers. If they're not universal problem solvers, one of the consequences of that is that all of the information for uh, our phenotypic output has to be in our genes somewhere. An example of this would be like spiders. All the phenotypic information that produces spider webs are in their genes. They're not in their culture. Whereas we have had this explosion over the last couple of hundred years of just an immense amount of information and knowledge from how to build skyscrapers to how to build rocket ships to the moon to how to build all these different art forms that do not have a corresponding explosion in the size of our genome. Therefore, they're happening mm -hmm. at some other level. They're happening at the level of culture. And if they're happening at the level of culture, because all of this novelty has come into being in the last couple hundred years, it must mean that the algorithm that they're running, the software that we're running as humans is a universal, is a universal uh, piece of software. In other words, that's why even though like an Aboriginal person like myself and a European person like yourself have ancestries that are very, very distant. You and I both went and learnt about computer science and about biology. It's like mm -hmm. taken totally for mm -hmm. granted that even though we have very different physical genetics, we are able to learn the same set of things because we're running this unit. So that idea cuts through this, this IQ stuff. And so it almost mm -hmm. completely eliminates the idea that there's some underlying genetic explanation for this very, for this differences between groups. It must be a cultural, there must be a reason why, like, say, for example, Jews, Jews have a way overrepresented in uh, winning Nobel Prizes. Well, if we're all running this universal algorithm, it can't be because J Jews have like some gene for winning Nobel Prizes. Literally, like, we're forced into a position where, like, we can only, like, say, well, it must be a cultural thing. There's something cultural going on here. Unless, unless I'm wrong, obviously. Like, I could be wrong. I could be wrong, wrong about that. Because, like, if you take two people, one person, say, they might differ in terms of their memory, for example. Like, their ability to hold certain things in their short-term memory. And if one person is able to just hold so much less in their short-term memory than another person, that is going to limit the number of things that they can, maybe not theoretically, but in actual practice, compute in some way. Or also their ability to focus on a single thing. Like, that is actually going to limit the number of algorithms, if we're going to abstract it, that they can perform versus another person. I don't, I don't think there's complete parity with 
which which mental tasks different people can perform because there's there's the ability to conceptualize of things but then there's there's also almost the execution part which is things like short-term memory concentration and those really do vary between people yeah the universality argument doesn't actually address that or if anything it actually like helps us understand the variability because the variability between humans is so enormous you have to ask Hmm. like how can how can it be so enormous when we can have people who are interested in everything from like creating abstract art to creating abstract mathematics (laughs) to creating abstract novels to creating Mm -hmm. extremely concrete things like dancing around or like creating carpentry like where is all this variability coming from it's like mm, there's more mm. variability in our behavioural output than there is in our physical phenotypes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? So I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with those sorts of things. Oh, and I'm also thinking out loud now because that's, that's, that's a huge thing. And then, yeah, it will interact with so many different parts of your personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, it's the, it's the reason why we have so much personality distribution like you can be radically different to you can be so Mm. radically different to your parents what why is it that humans can be like yes obviously you can also be very similar to your parents but there can be people who are just like so radically different to their parents they can't even have a relationship with their parents and probably a lot of that will be down to the the generative or the creative capacity of this universality of the individual, yeah. So that was the next most important, th- or one of the most important consequences of universality is you can't have creativity at the level of the individual, and therefore the culture in which the individual is participating. That creativity can't happen unless there's a universal. Like, if you think through, or what if humans are not universal? It means that we're running a predefined function, mm-hmm. a predefined algorithm with a limited set of knowledge, like chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. So all the creativity. Like universality is intimately linked to the creativity, the human variability, and all that sort of stuff. It's like a core part of it. And this idea, the reason why I'm speaking in such vague terms is because this is actually extremely new knowledge. This is actually an idea that hasn't like penetrated into psychology. It hasn't penetrated into neuroscience. Like I studied neuroscience in my undergrad. Nobody ever brought up the idea of universality. The mm-hmm. only place it seems to have really like, okay, well, it's the foundation of computer science. Mm-hmm. And it seems to have somehow just gone stuck in computer science. Yeah, that does bring up Land's view of of human equality, which is which is a really like it's an interesting or it's an important part of Land's worldview. In that he just fundamentally rejects that humans are equal or all humans are equal. So he says. To call the belief in, in substantial human equality a superstition is to insult superstition. It might be unwarranted to believe in leprechauns, but at least the person who holds to such a belief isn't watching them not exist for every waking hour of the day. So Land says that... Oh, I'll, I'll read another quote, actually. Human inequality, in contrast, and in all of its abundant multiplicity, is constantly on display as people exhibit their variations in gender, ethnicity, physical attractiveness, size and shape... Strength, health, agility, charm, humour, wit, industriousness, and social, social ability, among countless other features, traits, abilities, and aspects of their personality. And with land, yeah, this is an aspect. So, equality itself is not is is a slightly slippery term. So, 
in the sense of we have certain mm. characteristics to us that are not equal. I think that's it's it's hard to disagree with that. It's even if you just look at height. Okay, yes, people have different heights. You meet some people and they're just smarter than other people. Okay, you meet some people who are, you, know, you might consider two people smart, but they might be very good at very different things. That's also some inequality. So in that sense, I think, yes, humans There's are There's also choice. But the, the other meaning of inequality, though, is, okay, what do you do with that information? What do you do with that difference between different individuals? Yeah. Are you going to say that, okay, but the fact that they're all human beings, okay, they're, they're all sentient presumably in the way that I am and therefore that affords mm. them some basic equality? Like you can use that <laughs> <Presumably>. and that <laughs> also means equality. Like what, what do you do with that information? Yeah. And that's where I see the difference in how land is defining equality and where the people land is speaking against define equality. I think they're actually talking about two different things. And it's important. That's why I brought up there was this, uh, it, there's these uh, kind of, you can see how they're closely related, but you can play sleight of hand with words like justice and yeah, equality yeah. and individualism and stuff. And the left, I think, plays a certain sleight of hand with it. So <clears throat> my intuition is, roughly speaking, based on the universality argument, is that the reason, so... <clears throat> Let's say that the shortest human adult to have ever existed is one foot tall, just for sake of argument. And let's say the mm -hmm. tallest human adult to have ever existed is without later biotechnological intervention, just like naturally, um, is 12 foot tall. That means, that means that there's only a 12x disparity in a physical mm. attribute. But... You can have disparities of a billion X, of a hundred billion X, a hundred billion. Like Elon Musk, let's say he's worth a hundred billion dollars. There's literally people out there in the world who are worth one dollar, who have mm. nothing but mm. like the fact that they can pick up a fucking tool to, and that's the only like economic value that they can bring to bear. They don't have any technology, they don't have any property or whatever, and they don't have any skills. And so Elon Musk is literally a hundred billion times more economically uh, productive than like lots of people. There's lots of people who don't have uh, the ability to generate like a dollar a day worth of income. So mm -hmm. how can you have just such an unbelievable, and also that wealth inequality is, it seems to be getting bigger and bigger. But there could be a trillionaire in our lifetimes whilst there's still people who are worth mm have like a dollar worth of wealth or $10 worth of wealth. Like mm -hmm. that enormous enormity, like that is such a gargantuan level of inequality. The only thing that can explain that is that it's entirely based on basically like cognitive things, like cognitive things, choice, technology, ownership of capital. Those are all non-physical, like they're physical, but they're not like genetic in the way that we think about race as genetic. Yeah. Well, inheritance of cognitive abilities is more complex than like inheritance of skin color, for example, which is fairly straightforward. And so <clears throat> I see land, land and the people that he disagrees with as like, they're talking about, the, there's this thing that is like, cutting it's i don't want to use the word equality there's something that's okay 
I'm going to say equivalence. I'm going to use the word equivalence because it's kind mm. of similar. There's computational equivalence from the universality about given somebody's got a functional mind, they don't have some sort of brain damage, they might make different choices and choose to learn different things. And over the course of our lives, we'll become very different. But in principle, if you forced yourself to go and learn whatever, unless there's some... There, There'll be caveats as we learn more about like what it means for this universality argument to apply to humans, but <clears throat> that's a different sense of equivalence or like computational equivalence, which I'm substituting in for the word equality versus mm. the actual economic or performance outcomes given that an agent with computational universality or problem-solving universality goes out and makes different choices in their life, acquires different technology or acquires different productivity or inherits different capital from like their society or their, their family and goes and uses those in different ways in the world, you're going to have radically, radically disparate and unequal outcomes at the end of those choices over the course mm. of people's lifetimes. Those are two like extremely different senses. And one is more of a description of like the physical phenomena of a person existing in the world. And one is more like a description of like what that person does with the capital and technology and so forth at hand and the knowledge in their society. And that's a very different, those yeah. two things are very different to like a normative claim about the way that people should be treated in the eyes of the law. And because mm -hmm. of yeah. this lack of distinguishing words between those different ideas, like the left and Nick Land and this entire conversation is actually really confused. Yep. How about, how about we talk about how the left and right respond to dialectics and use that as a way to discuss Nick Land's exit strategy? He basically talks about why conservatism is rudderless. And so he says in the American context, liberalism, outside of the United States, maybe calling it post-liberalism or universalism, would mean more, but why that is ascendant within Western contexts. So he says that the left thrives on dialectics and the right dies by them. So he says that the left doesn't really recognise attacks to the left, to its left. Instead, it just sees those people as idealists whose time has not yet come. It's almost a challenge. Whereas on the right, they get bludgeoned by the left for not being sufficiently progressive. And the, they can't integrate the attacks from their right because they're socially unpalatable in a democracy because the, the attacks from the right tend to be sort of Austrian economics libertarians who are, who are unpalatable in a democracy or eth ethno-nationalists or other forms of nationalists, things that don't play well with, with the state with the expansion of state power, whereas he says that the left can integrate these dialectics. They can synthesize. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think probably part of the reason why the much of the right in the West is pretty rudderless at the moment is that you need to question what is the context within which conservatism exists. So what is conservatism seeking to conserve? In the West... Conservatism exists within a tradition of liberalism. So liberalism is, I think, in many ways, a to say it is a progressive school of thought sounds 
silly or redundant. I don't mean progressive in the sense of um, uh, legalizing gay marriage or something like that. I mean progressive in the sense that it's continuously seeking to expand the moral sphere. It has a real crusading element to it and always seeks to look at what is the next group that can be liberated. And within that context, conservatism is basically let's move slowly or let's take this thing which has this this innate drive to continue liberating, to continue flattening power hierarchies and stop it, which which I just don't think really functions very well. It's why I think conservatism within a liberal context is sort of a losing proposition. So I somewhat differ from Nick Land in that respect as to why why the left has an easier time in Western societies dominating cultural arguments than the right. Another problem with this is this gets, it gets metaphysical and it's hard to look at concrete, like to, to examine concrete trends and concrete causative mechanisms as to why these sorts of things happen. He takes this and says, if you are not part of universalism, then he says dialectics, but basically trying to argue with universalism in the sense of expressing voice. If listeners think back to the voice exit dichotomy Mm. that we outlined at the beginning of this episode, that never Mm. benefits anyone except people who are universalists. And so he proposes an ultimate exit strategy. So I could see you wanted to say something before we get onto the ultimate exit strategy. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting idea. I think that it is. I don't know if it's more of just a. It's just like the parochial circumstance of our time that that's how things have like played out mm. and developed. I don't know if it's like actually really a a substantive explanation of the way that these things have to work. Um, it's just, it seems to me as though like just a lot of the taboos that have developed have like, we've lost certain taboos that would be associated with conservatism. So like it used to be taboo to be homosexual and now it's taboo mm-hmm. to be uh, against homosexuals or like against Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, homophobic or whatever you want to say, um, like that taboo shift. Like all all cultures have taboos, right? That taboo shift mm-hmm. seems to have like has it drifted left. It's drifted left pretty fucking hard, hasn't it? Has it? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I and I think part of that with land explained in terms of oh, we did talk about this. That shift from the notion of tolerance initially being tolerance in a negative sense of being able to be left alone yeah. versus tolerance has now yeah. morphed into tolerance in a positive sense in that you're expected yeah. to celebrate yeah, yeah. other groups. Whether that's part of the fundamental, like the, the internal calculus of liberalism or it's parochial, it's hard to know. So the one counter I would offer is that like the future is open. Mm. Our democratic institutions in the West have not become violent authoritarians while they had their moment in the sun during COVID. But notwithstanding the COVID issue, like uh, as far as I can see, they're still functioning and there could be a swing, say in Australia, back towards the right and more conservative stuff 
it just might not happen in a time scale that Nick Land appreciates, nor in a way that Nick Land appreciates or that, say, the neo-reactionaries appreciate. It might happen in a different way where we get a different set of taboos and whatever. Mm. Um, we don't know. We, we can only see what happens. Um, but unless, like, actually those democratic institutions completely break down... Yeah, that is. You do bring up an an important point with Nick Land's philosophy is that it's highly determined, deterministic. Yeah, it's extremely deterministic. In that, in that, he says that it's like you you just can't change stuff. This is going to happen, and individual wills don't really play any sort of part in that. They always so the Bioluminous guy, Spandrel, Nick Land, um, Yarvin. Um, are making oh Evola has like they come up with they concoct some reason why the future is not open and why they can predict the inevitable degeneration of society versus and according to their construction because of this game theory or because of this cycle or because of such and such ratchet in the democratic institution or whatever they sort of assume there's this like determinism and because of the logic the outcome of their logic means that it'll decay and fall apart in such and such a way like that always implicitly assumes that people cannot solve problems and people cannot solve this mm, problem mm. if this is in fact a problem that these democratic institutions are ratcheting towards the left and are heading towards economic like serious economic issues and are also like uh increasingly suppressing people's like freedom of speech and so if that's an issue if that's a problem which i think those are problems then either they can be solved in which case the future's open and nick land could be wrong or they can't be solved and you need to come down like basically Nick Land has come down on the side of it can't be solved. We just need to accelerate it. Mm. Exit and accelerate, which could be like it's I guess it's semantic. Like you could say that's that's his solution to the problem is exit and accelerate. Yeah. So it's really I think a lot of this stuff comes down to like, do you think that the the pattern, the trend that you've identified is a trend of inevitability or do you think that it's uh, susceptible to intervention by human creativity? Mm. Well, what I think is that the solution to this problem lies over the bionic horizon. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> We've been edging this whole time. And, okay, so... I'm about to bust, I think actually, bust an intellectual nut. <laughs> the... I will say there are spoilers ahead. Like, if you just want to, if you don't want the ending of this spoiled, because part of what makes the ending so funny is reading through the other, like, 26,000 words of this essay and then getting to this point and going, oh, I didn't see that coming. We will spoil it, and it'll probably be less funny when it's recounted to you in a podcast than if you read it yourself. If you want the full effect, I'll just say, like, I, I recommend reading this. I think it's interesting. And irritating aspects of his wandering amphetamine fuel mind aside it is it does raise some interesting questions but okay so spoiler warning for the ending of this given that the left dominates dialectics the strategy for the right lies in exit not in voice and 
he has this long discussion of different evolutionary strategies, which is somewhat, it's sort of interesting. But, but what is relevant here is what I talked about at the beginning of the episode, tracing through the development of the universe, these systems of increasingly rapid complexity generation from chemical reactions to genetic reactions to genetics within the context of a biological organism to then thought, so thoughts being shared between humans, this acceleration of complexity generation and the exit strategy that Land ultimately proposes is for elite groups of humans to accelerate their own biological evolution and integrate with technology to form completely different species. The exit strategy lies beyond the biological horizon. And I just didn't see that happening. The the final sentence is... Leave humanity behind. Is Rich Piana. The final sentence is... When seen from the bionic horizon, whatever emerges from the dialectics of racial terror remains trapped in trivialities. It's time to move on. This is in the context of him spending a lot of time talking about race relations in society. And his final point is, look, when you view it from the perspective of elite groups accelerating their own biological evolution and speciating away from the rest of humanity then these racial problems are just not relevant. They're just, they're so trivial. And I, just, I love that solution. <laughs> if, if we rapidly evolve, and if we go, if we evolve fast enough, then racial tensions now will look so incredibly trivial compared to hyperspeciation that we shouldn't worry. <laughs> that, that ending to this essay is just so good. It's just so fantastic. I, I love. I wrote um, so secession much. by secession by speciation, secession by speciation. Yep. So you're in fact you actually have a fifth way of voting. You can vote with your fucking genes, bitches. <laughs> you, you can just speciate. <laughs> you can just become a, a, a hyperhuman. Become whatever you want. Turn into a tyrannid. <laughs> you just say, fuck all this race nonsense. Who cares? Just become whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> become a, um, an ultramarine fuck or something. Yeah. yeah. I didn't see it coming either. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. It also kind of made... Or it made all the rest of the essay. I always felt like, why did you spend so much on the rest of it? <laughs> it actually makes the rest of the essay make sense. It makes a lot more sense because he's basically trying to, I think he's trying to crescendo like, hey, there's all this mm, racism. Mm, like mm. people are like getting all upset and up in arms about race and this and race that and whatever. And it's like, well, it turns out it doesn't matter anyways. <laughs> we'll just become a new type of human. <laughs> So the narrative arc of this is really interesting in that if if I were if I weren't reading this for an episode or if I hadn't been reading this for an episode I might have stopped because especially that middle bit it I just didn't know where he was going. It's like okay I can see you don't like all of these aspects of race relations or how how race relations are discussed in our society. But I don't really see where this is going. But then yeah the ending it builds up to the ending and it's very unexpected and that's really fun. Does that surprise 
compensate for feeling a bit lost in the middle as to what he's going for. Now that I've read it, I'd say yes, because it's just... When he starts talking about evolution... Now that we've recorded And the different forms of evolution episode. and then yeah. cosmic evolution, I was like, okay, and how evolution itself evolves. I was like, okay, where's he taking this? It feels like he's building towards something that's going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah, then when he pulls out the exit strategy, speciation. <laughs> that was... <laughs> Yeah, I th- I think the crescendo is worth it. It's just people reading it need to know that you get through that middle bit because something really good is coming. <laughs> I've got this one quote. I've got this one quote. It's so good. He says, I don't think you read this part, but he says, uh, for racial nationalists concerned that their grandchildren should look like them, this author is the abyss. Miscegenation does not even get close to the issue. Think face tentacles and he literally, <laughs> literally references um he literally references uh butler what's her name um judith butler judith butler's owen carly a particular race like um alien race from her um lilith brood uh trilogy and it's so good i was like oh my god like it's so good i i, I went and bought the trilogy i was like ah, i gotta read this <laughs> Wait, was that Judith Butler or Octavia Butler? I think that was Octavia Butler, not Judith Butler. Sorry, Octavia, Octavia Butler, not Judith Butler. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. Um, yeah, Octavia Butler's uh, Lilith, Lilith Brood or um, Xenogenesis trilogy. Um, and I started reading it because of this, and I really like it. <laughs> it's really... Yeah, yeah. I started looking into getting some of her books after reading that because I thought, okay, if Nick Land thinks this person... If Nick it's Land really is mentioning good. this person in the context of the funniest bit of this essay, then I want to read her books. So listen to this. Uh, he says, uh, uh, Octavia Butler's Owen Carly, the um, alien species, quote, gene traders, have no identity separable from the biotechnological program that they perpetually implement upon themselves as they commercially acquire, industrially produce, and sexually reproduce their population within a single integral process. Between what the Owen Carly are and the way they live or behave, there is no firm difference because they make themselves. Their nature is their culture and, of course, reciprocally. What they are is exactly what they do. <laughs> He's just said, mm. just, let's just go full fucking science fiction. And Leave I think actually, because I behind, used the term bionic horizon a few times. So he defines the bionic horizon as the point beyond which <laughs> our technology and our being is indistinguishable. It's the event horizon of biotechnology. And so the, the exit strategy lies beyond the bionic horizon. And that's that's the end of this essay. He ends it. He starts strong and ends strong. I think it was worth it. I think it was worth it. It's kind of like he's uh he's kind of like intellectually fin doming you in the middle of the So would would you recommend this? I've already recommended I it. I think if you listen to us talk about it for three and a half hours, you should just go and read it. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, just go and read it. Because there's so much we didn't cover. Granted, a lot of the stuff we didn't cover is a bit more annoying. There's a lot of there's a lot of worthwhile stuff that we also didn't cover. I would say yeah. if you like yeah. Nat like the NRX stuff, you've probably already read this, but if you like Curtis Yarvin and you haven't read The Dark Enlightenment, easy recommend. Uh, I'd actually probably recommend it to a lot of people. I would, yeah. I don't see why you shouldn't shouldn't read it. It's uh, especially how it ends. It's 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 very fun. Would I not recommend it to anybody? I would. No, nah, I'd like go give it a read. Um, maybe skip like a couple of sections. Skip skip like. 
some of the sections of part four, some of the early sections of part four. Maybe just read. There's there's a there's five parts to part four. Yeah. yeah. Maybe just read skim through that, <laughs> and then get to the last bit. Yeah, except for the final part of part four, because that's really good. Yeah, that's yeah. the bionic horizon. The part. bionic horizon. Just read enough of part four. Read enough of part four that you get what he's saying, and then skip to bionic horizon. Mm. Go straight <laughs> to the bionic horizon. Because <laughs> bionic horizon is good. I feel as though he Spe- could have arrived at the bionic your horizon way away from racism. <laughs> My main problem with this book, with this, with this piece of writing, was that he just he could have gone there so much faster. He could have gone yeah, there so he much really faster. could have. I reckon he could have done. And this. if you listen to him in interviews, he also speaks like this. Yeah, yeah. Which I also found really frustrating. <laughs> Do you have much more to add about the Dark Enlightenment? Yeah. Anyways, um, thanks for listening. Do you... Yeah, thanks for listening. No, no. Um, yeah. No, it's interesting. Interesting conversation. Um, sorry if I ranted too much. That was very Levi ranty. <laughs> heavy, heavy rant episode. My apologies. <laughs> uh, yeah, what do we have next, Jack? While Jack's looking that up, um, we're updating the website so you can find like our book list there. I'm slowly adding them to the catalog. Um, also, uh, we've got books and stuff coming out and all that sort of good stuff. Um, and you can find our blogs. We've started writing, like I've started writing on my blog. Jack's starting to write. So if you like our stuff and you want to read our thoughts on other things, um, you can find our links at our website, bookclubfromhell.com. And that'll also have links to like our social media a discord and all that sort of stuff um oh yeah and obviously contact form i gotta put a contact form up the next thing we're doing is we're going to be reading through at least parts of the fatal rulebook so fatal is a tabletop rpg which includes things like dice rolls for anal circumference <laughs> fantastic fantastic <laughs> it's <laughs> nah, thanks for listening we got a few requests for this Thank you. Thank you for listening to us talk about Nick Land for three hours. <laughs>